Lucifer Moon's Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Bloodstone Compendium Chapter 4 The Mountain versus the Viper and the Hammer of the Waters Hey there, friends and fellow mythical astronomers. Thanks for joining us today on the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. I'm your host, LML, and with me today to read the quotes from the text is Lady Nightwind. As always, our intro music is a band called Animals as Leaders. Big thanks to them. And also a big thanks to you, the listener and downloader, and to George R.R. Martin for writing such fantastic books. Also, as usual, you can find the matching text to this podcast on my website, luciferMeansLightbringer.wordpress.com. We've spent most of the last two Bloodstone Compendium episodes using the mythical associations of Bloodstone as a way of explaining various elements of the Long Night disaster and the various characteristics of Lightbringer. Now that we know what's up with the Black Bloodstones, let's take this knowledge and apply it to a highly metaphorical scene where we will see most of these Bloodstone associations come into play. The trial by combat to decide Tyrion's fate between Prince Oberyn Martell, the Red Viper of Dorne, and Sir Gregor Clegane, the Mountain That Rides, is a terrific scene which is made even better by decoding its mythical astronomy. I'm going to deal with this scene much as I did with Danny's alchemical wedding scene at the end of the first essay. This means that we'll go through the important parts of the scene chunk by chunk, and as we go, I'll bring in other scenes from throughout the series which have correlating symbolism. When we went through Danny's alchemical wedding, where she undergoes fire transformation and wakes the dragons, we referenced other scenes that involve burning blood and fire transformation to show how they work in parallel to tell the same story, and we'll do so again here. This podcast is basically going to be a chapter review, but in a totally twisted kind of way that bears little resemblance to what you might think of as a chapter review. It will also bear little resemblance to our normal format of examining one specific idea like the cause of the Long Night or Azor High and his character, so instead we'll be going through the chapter, picking out the mythical astronomy, and identifying the symbolism of the characters and their deeds. It's going to be a little bit like reading the chapter on 30,000-year-old caveman mushrooms, but not so much that it's going to get weird or anything, so you have nothing to fear. Well, maybe. Basically, here's the deal. There are some chapters which are essentially metaphorical from beginning to end, and now that I have introduced most of the Lightbringer Long Night symbols, we can go through these chapters and really harvest all the gold nuggets. There's a certain art to the way Martin runs a metaphorical idea through an entire chapter, and sometimes I find it's really worthwhile to keep the focus on a single chapter and follow his train of thought. In addition, we're going to occasionally depart from the trial by combat scene to explore a few related subtopics, such as The Last Hero, the Sword Widow's Whale, the Purple Wedding and Sansa's poisonous black amethyst hairnet, and Aegon II Blackfire, a.k.a. John the Fiddler, from the third Duncan Egg novella, The Mystery Knight. Most of all, we'll have a major section right in the middle about the Hammer of the Waters and the Storm God's Thunderbolt of the Grey King legend. Although we're always talking about the Long Night in general, certain chapters seem to really hone in on one specific aspect of the disaster— The chapter we'll be looking at today contains some great Hammer of the Waters clues, and let me tell you, Hammer of the Waters clues are the best sort of clues. It's a fascinating subject, and the metaphors are equally impressive. 
What's even more impressive is how Martin manages to take a mysterious event from the ancient past and not only feed us the clues we need to solve the puzzle, but to actually provide multiple avenues of corroboration. It's like this huge four-dimensional jumble of clever with all the metaphors and the word puns and the... Well, you'll see. By the time we're done today, I feel confident that you'll feel confident that you know the basics of what's up with the Hammer of the Waters. I'll be doing a lot more of these chapter reviews in the future. I've got a lot of notes on a bunch of my favorites, and I'll break them out as it seems appropriate, or as people holler out requests from the back of the room. Sorry, I don't know Freebird. Although I can play the History of Westeros theme on my bass. Now, when I first wrote this intro, I wrote a sentence here about how these types of chapter-centric episodes will tend to be a bit shorter and more contained than my regular ones. But now that I've finished the whole thing, I think I should probably just stick to it'll be really interesting and fun and the moon meteors will come up again. And did I mention that Lady Nightwind has a lovely reading voice? Now, before we begin, I want to very briefly bring up two scenes which we've already analyzed the bejesus out of because they set the stage for the symbolism that we're about to see in the fight. The first is Melisandre's vision of the eyeless skulls with sockets weeping blood and the black and bloody tide from A Dance with Dragons, as well as its corresponding scene where John and Mel find the decapitated heads of three Night's Watch brothers mounted on spears just north of the wall. To sum up, the black and bloody tide and the blood coming from the eyeless sockets of the skulls represents the moon blood motif and the moonblood refers to both the flood of bleeding stars in the sky and the resulting floods of seawater which came from one or more meteors landing in the ocean and triggering tsunamis. All of this blood is black because it refers to the general concept of fire transformation, such as the second moon experienced at the time of the long night. Melisandre bleeds black blood when she sees this vision in the flames and has, quote, the fire inside her, searing her and transforming her. The skull motif in general represents the idea of a decapitated moon face falling from the sky, and the multiple skulls in particular represent the moon meteors of the long night. They weep blood because the meteors are bleeding stars, which appear to trail blood, and they trigger a bloody tide rising from the depths because the real floods of the long night were triggered by moon meteors. For what it's worth, the rock inside a comet or a meteor is commonly referred to as the head of the comet. The blindness, eyes torn out motif refers to the moon weeping blood or being blinded or both. Think of Lyanna weeping blood or of the tears of the weeping wall that appeared to Jon Snow as streaks of red fire and rivers of black ice. Or think about the moon as an eye which is put out. The heads of the Night's Watch brothers found later in that chapter, which were mounted on spears of ashwood with black and bloody holes for eye sockets, combines all of these symbols. Spears by themselves can represent meteors or comets, and the addition of a severed head on the tip simply adds to the imagery. The spears of ashwood create the idea of a burning meteor trailing ash behind it as it falls to earth, weeping blood and flame. There's one other scene which is important to remember for this fight, and it's the one I like to call Benero Pantomimes the Mythical Astronomy Theory. This one I'll quote because it would really just take longer to summarize it. The knight nodded. The Red Temple buys them as children and makes them priests or temple prostitutes or warriors. Look there. He pointed at the steps where a line of men in ornate armor and orange cloaks stood before the temple's doors, clasping spears with points like writhing flames. 
the fiery hand, the Lord of Light's sacred soldiers, defenders of the temple. Fire knights. And how many fingers does this hand have, pray? One thousand, never more and never less. A new flame is kindled for everyone that gutters out. Benero jabbed a finger at the moon, made a fist, spread his hands wide. When his voice rose in a crescendo, flames leapt from his fingers with a sudden whoosh and made the crowd gasp. The priest could trace fiery letters in the air as well, Valyrian glyphs. Tyrion recognized perhaps two in ten. One was doom, the other darkness. The thing I want to draw your attention to here is the fact that Benero's fist represents the moon, and when it opens in a burst of fire, the fingers represent the meteors. In turn, the soldiers of the fiery hand are called fingers here, and they hold fiery spears. Thus, Benero's fiery fingers and the fiery spears are both meteor symbols. In the Mountain vs. the Viper trial by combat, we'll see spears, fingers, and fists aplenty, all of which will build on the symbolism laid out here in this Benero scene. You'll notice that Benero's fist only becomes the fiery hand when it opens and shoots out the fiery fingers. That's because the closed fist represents the moon before it kisses the sun. Once it's impregnated with the sun's fiery dragon seed, it explodes in a burst of flame and becomes the fiery hand. This correlates to the Carthine Lunar Origin of Dragons folktale, where the moon kisses the sun and cracks from the heat, and the emerging moon dragons drink the fire of the sun. Of course, these sun-fertilized moon meteors represent the children of the sun and the moon, which is Lightbringer. Similarly, the fiery hand is neither sun nor moon, but both. It's when the sun animates the moon with fire and the fiery fingers pour forth like spears and dragons. Pretty much all of the severed, burned, or bloody hands in A Song of Ice and Fire play into this running, symbolic motif. All right, now that we've brushed up on all that, let's dig into the chapter. The Mountain and the Viper A Storm of Swords, Tyrion First, let's identify our two combatants, starting with Oberyn Martell. The Sun Snake Prince Oberyn Martell is from Sunspear, the capital of Dorne. The sigil of Dorne is a red sun transfixed by a golden spear, so the obvious thing to connect Oberyn with is the sun. Indeed, Oberyn is essentially a manifestation of this sigil. He wears a high golden helm with a copper disc mounted on the brow, the son of Dorne, and he wields a deadly spear. Oberyn's armor is more the same. It's made up of bright copper discs and referred to as scales of gleaming armor. A snake would have armor made of scales, naturally. Oberyn is called the Red Viper, which immediately puts us in mind of the Red Comet and the Red Sword remembered as Lightbringer. Dragons, snakes, and worms, or virums, are from the same mythological family tree, both in the real world and in A Song of Ice and Fire. For example, Daemon Targaryen named his red dragon Bloodworm, and some believe that dragons were engineered from fireworm stock, as Maester Yandel tells us in The World of Ice and Fire. We've also seen quite a lot of serpentine vocabulary used to describe the dragons throughout all five books. Oberyn the Red Viper is sometimes called a snake or the snake in this chapter in particular. Tyrion muses as follows. The snake is eager, he thought. Let us hope he is venomous as well. And then, 
I hope to seven hells that you know what you are doing, Snake. He's a venomous hell snake, our red viper. Towards the end of the fight, we get this line. If you die before you say her name, sir, I will hunt you through all seven hells. Now the Dornish Desert is pretty much the next best thing to hell. And there is this nasty place called the Hellholt, which used to be ruled by a Lord Lucifer Dryland who was sent to the Wall in Golden Fetters by Nymeria. But I have to think that these hellish references ultimately go back to the Bloodstone Emperor Azor Ahai and his quasi-Luciferian influences. This motif also pops up with the dragons and their brimstone stink, and with a few other quotes about Azor Ahai reborn characters like Stannis, such as when Davos reflects on the horrific death toll of the Battle of Blackwater Bay. Drowned or burned, with my sons and a thousand others, gone to make a king in hell. Adding to the devilish imagery is Oberyn's squire, who is named Damon, and then this bit from the very beginning of the fight. When the two men were ten yards apart, the red vipers stopped and called out, Have they told you who I am? Ser Gregor grunted through his breaths, Some dead man. Azor Ahai, the walking dead, once again. We cracked open that topic last time, so we don't need to dwell on it here, but Azor Ahai was indeed a dead man at some point, or a resurrected man, something along those lines. The Dark Solar King is a night sun, a dead or undead sun, in other words. I think it's safe to say that Oberyn is playing into the Azor Ahai Dark Solar King archetype, armed with a venomous sun spear. He reminds me of the Aztec and other related Mesoamerican solar deities, who are usually depicted with bloodthirsty, outstretched tongues. And in fact, there's a line where Oberyn describes his younger self as a monstrous young fellow and says that someone should have sliced out my vile tongue. Of course, we've seen tongues of flame used to describe the meteor shower. So the idea here is of fiery projectiles coming from the sun. Spears, tongues, fiery fingers and hands and swords, poison darts, dragon flame, dragon's teeth, which are like swords or knives. They all create more or less the same picture. Put it all together, and you have the kind of dastardly solar king who would destroy the moon, a monstrous, vile fellow indeed. The red viper aspect of Oberyn seems like a great symbol of the red comet wielded by the sun in the Azor High myth. This also nails the poisoning idea related to bloodstone and the notion of the moon having been poisoned and sickened, since vipers are among the most poisonous snakes in the world. Oberyn's offspring are even called sand snakes which seems like a good parallel to Azor High being the father of moon dragons. Young Oberyn was also described as being quick as a water snake by his older brother Doran, who reflects on how Oberyn would always win the contest played amongst the children at the water gardens. That's a pretty great sea dragon reference, and you know I always get excited to see the sea dragon pop up. Remember that this is the sea dragon that drowns whole islands, which seems like a fairly on-the-nose description for a dragon meteor landing in the sea and causing floods which drown the land. We're going to talk about the Hammer of the Waters in a little bit, which certainly involved drowning a lot of land, and I think both of these events are simply different descriptions of moon meteor impacts. In the same chapter with Doran, Obara says that the Red Viper of Doran went where he would, which evokes a little bit of the Red Wanderer idea, perhaps. Oberyn's shield adds to the Bloodstone ideas. His round steel shield was brightly polished and showed the sun and spear in red gold, yellow gold, White gold and copper. The other name for bloodstone is heliotrope, which means sun and to turn, or to turn the sun, or to turn towards the sun. There's also a device called a heliotrope, which uses mirrors to refract focused sunlight. 
Oberyn will actually use his brightly polished shield to reflect the sun at a crucial moment in the fight, just like the heliotrope device. It's a mirror shield, in other words. Now recall all the copper shield and sun imagery that we saw with Drogon and the eyes of the dragons. If the pointy weapons like spears and swords make good meteor symbols, then the round, shiny shields make for good sun and full moon symbols, and we'll see George use shields in just this way in the fight here. Speaking of spears and meteors, we've seen the meteors symbolized as spears on many occasions, including the two passages I highlighted at the beginning, Mel's chapter with the Night's Watch brothers' heads on Ashwood spears, and the scene at the Red Temple with the Fire Knights of Valor, who hold spears that look like writhing flames. As you can see, the idea of a solar character like Oberyn wielding a big-ass spear also shows us the sun wielding the giant red comet, the moon killer. If the red comet is a spear, then it would surely be a sun spear, as would the fiery dragon meteor children of the sun and moon. There's a line about the two weapons of the Dornish being the sun and the spear, with the sun being the more deadly of the two. Now imagine the sun actually throwing fiery meteorite spears at you. Yeah, real bad news. The Sun Spear Saving the best for last, let's have a look at that poisonous sun spear, shall we? We are fond of spears in Dorn. Besides, it is the only way to counter his reach. Have a look, Lord Imp, but see you do not touch. The spear was turned ash eight feet long, the shaft smooth, thick, and heavy. The last two feet of that was steel, a slender, leaf-shaped spearhead narrowing to a wicked spike. The edges looked sharp enough to shave with. When Oberyn spun the haft between the palms of his hands, they glistened black. Oil or poison? The spear is tipped in black poison, which looks like black oil. This is a great connection, tying the magically toxic, oily black stone to the idea of a poisonous sun spear. I have proposed that the oily black stones are moon meteors, black bloodstones, and here we see that the steel blade of the sun spear is coated in black poison that looks like oil. That's pretty sweet symbolism, right? I'll say it again. The sun spear is an oily black blade. And I say to you, Are you not entertained? One of the bloodstone ideas we explored last time was its association with drawing out snake venom, and we saw that George seems to have inverted this, making his bloodstone toxic and poisonous itself. Think of a shy and yin, where no plants will grow anywhere near the greasy black stone found in these locations. My idea about this oily black stone is that it is either moon meteorite ore, or stone burnt black by moon meteor impacts. Comets and meteors which enter the Earth's atmosphere push a wave of superheated air in front of it hot enough to melt stone, and there's really too much oily black stone to all be meteorite ore, so I'm guessing a lot of it was created by these moon meteor firestorms. Additionally, if a meteor or comet strikes a rocky part of the Earth, the meteor itself will melt or vaporize and then fuse with the bedrock. I'm not sure exactly how Martin is picturing all this, but I do know that we are seeing these repeated clues tying the oily black stone to the moon meteors, so I think we can feel confident that there is a very close connection between the two. The toxicity of the oily black stone does seem likely to be magical in nature, particularly in a shy, and this correlates nicely with Kyburn's assessment that the snake venom on Oberyn's spear must have been thickened by magic. There's another link between Oberyn and the oily black stone, which is his water snake description. 
The only place water snakes are mentioned in the books that I can find is at Moat Kalin, and as we saw last time, the objects in the bog of Moat Kalin in that scene symbolize different aspects of the moon meteors. The poison kisses flowers, the lizard lions, the venomous water snakes, and most of all, the oily black stones that lay strewn about the bog like some god's abandoned toys. Most importantly, the red viper's oily black snake-poisoned sun spear ultimately turns Gregor's blood black, just as the Lightbringer comet turned the moon's blood black when it plunged into its heart. I mentioned before that I think the oil or the grease on this oily black stone is George's depiction of blackened moon blood. And of course, don't get too literal here, but that's the picture being drawn. The greasy or oily black stones are somehow covered in black moon blood, which is poisonous. This also fits with the notion of the red comet being a bleeding star, Dany's dream of her black dragon child being covered in her blood, Nissa Nissa's blood coating Lightbringer, the eyeless skulls weeping blood, and all the other times dying moon maidens have bled upon stone to create bloodstone that we discussed in the past two episodes. Gregor is no moon maiden, but his blood is turned black by a Lightbringer symbol, and that symbol is Oberyn's spear which is covered in black oily poison. And now, we'll break from all the esoteric symbolism with a word from NASA's website about the nature of comets. This is taken from an article titled, What's in the Heart of a Comet? Their list of factoids includes the following. The surface is very black. The very black material on the surface is carbon-based material similar to the greasy black goo that burns onto your barbecue grill. Comets originally formed from ices, mostly water ice, silicate dust, like powdered beach sand, and this type of black space gunk. Well, that's quite the interesting cocktail. Greasy black space gunk, dirty ice, and the basic elements of glass. Don't forget stone and iron, of course, which is mentioned elsewhere in the article. We can see all the elements here George is working with to make his magical weapons which symbolize comets. A comet is made of ice and has a blue and white or silver tail, which can suggest dawn, or perhaps a white sword made of ice, or even an icy sword which burns with pale flame. The idea of dragon glass is present as well, and as I've mentioned before, one of the side effects of a comet impact can be falling pieces of obsidian known as tektites. Most of all, the idea that comets are coated with greasy black space gunk gives us a pretty clear indicator of what George was thinking about with his comet and moon meteors being tied to the greasy black stone, and also to weapons with black oil that symbolize Lightbringer and the moon meteors, and so on. The red comet, in other words, shows us greasy black stone and black ice burning red, and that's more or less how I see Lightbringer, with the extra detail that it may have been black fire shot through with red to match that of the black dragons, Drogon and Balerion, as well as the name of the ancestral sword of House Targaryen, which is called Blackfire. To finish up with Oberyn's sun spear, consider the shaft, which is called Turned Ash. This is referring to ash wood, but the image created is of a turning spearhead trailing ash behind it like a falling meteor. The trail of ash motif may also refer to the description of Azor Ahai's sword as being white-hot and smoking before he thrust it into Nissanissa's heart. The turning phrase applied to the spear is another match for bloodstone. A turned ash sun spear evokes the sun-turning meaning of heliotrope. We are going to see a whole damn lot of turning in this scene, primarily Gregor turning to face the sun, just as the heliotropium plant does. You remember Clytie, right? The goddess who pined away after the sun every day for nine days and eventually took root and turned into the heliotropium flower? 
I wouldn't call Sir Gregor a flower to his face, but regardless, that's what's going on, as you'll soon see. Oberyn's Ashwood Spear is a direct parallel to the Ashwood Spears on which the heads of the Eyeless Night's Watch brothers were found, and this parallel again points to the Orly Black Stone being some kind of black bloodstone, which is associated with moon meteors. I've shown that both of these Ashwood Spears represent meteors, as much as anything does, and severed heads and black blades in general make fantastic moon meteor symbols. So let's compare the objects on the tips of the two spears, because they are both describing the same thing in different ways. Oberyn's spear is topped with an oily black steel blade, the ones north of the wall with the heads of the Night's Watch brothers. Now, Night's Watch brothers are said to have black blood as a manner of speaking. Here, the severed heads actually have black and bloody holes where their eyes used to be, and in Mel's dream, they weep the black and bloody tide. Compare that to the poisonous black oil on Oberyn's spear, and you can see that the black blood of these heads and the black oil of Oberyn's blade are parallel symbols. If the oil on the infamous oily black stones is to be understood as moon blood, as I suggest, then the black blood and the black oil should be placed in parallel, and indeed they are in this scene, both appearing atop significant spears of ashwood. We actually saw the same blood and oil parallel in the Sansa moon blood scene from episode 3 where Sansa balled up the sheets that were literally coated in her moon blood and then doused them in oil before burning them and filling the room with smoke. One of the main hypotheses that I've made in these podcasts is that Azor High and the Bloodstone Emperor were the same person, and I've pointed out people like Jon and Daenerys who seem to combine the symbols and actions of both as evidence that they were the same person. That's the Bloodstone Emperor and Azor High the same person, not Jon and Danny. J equals D. That'd be a pretty weird theory. But now, consider Oberyn, the distinctly solar character whose red viper symbolism and undead symbolism and father of snakes symbolism tie him to Azor High, not to mention his slaughter of a moon character. As we just saw, he also has multiple bloodstone symbols about him as well, with the heliotropic mirror shield, the oily black sun spear, and the tangential water snake connection to the oily black stone. So consider Oberyn to be another example of characters who seem to combine Azor High and the bloodstone emperor or at least their symbolism. So that's it for Oberyn, the vengeful and bloodthirsty sun character who wields an oily black sun spear and gives birth to snakes. But before we move on to the mountain that rides, I want to briefly point out a third Ashwood weapon which I believe parallels the two we just discussed. This would be Aryo Hota's long axe, his ash and iron wife. Oberyn's ashen spear has a blade atop it, and the ones north of the wall have severed heads, but Aryo's has both. When she appeared beneath the triple arch, Arya Hota swung his long axe sideways to block the way. The head was on a shaft of mountain ash six feet long, so she could not go around. Did you catch that? The blade of the axe is the head. This is the same long axe which decapitates Sir Ari's Oakheart, he with the white silk cloak which was as pale as moonlight. Killing moon characters is what sun spears do, and it seems Arya's long axe is in the same class. It's interesting that this is called mountain ash, since Oberyn's ashwood spear ended up planted firmly in the mountain's chest, and Gregor is also decapitated like Sir Ari's. We'll come back to this idea in a moment. Lightbringer drank Nissa Nissa's blood and soul, and the Lightbringer meteors are made of the moon, and according to my theory, Lightbringer the actual sword was made from a black moon meteor. These meteors represent Nissa Nissa and the moon maiden who was the wife of the sun. 
Ario's long axe plays into this idea because it's called his Ashen Iron Wife, and Ario thinks about it as a woman in a slightly creepy and ominous kind of way. Hota strode forward, one hand wrapped about his long axe. The ash felt as smooth as a woman's skin against his palm. He even sleeps beside it. Like I said, it's a little weird. We'll talk more about Ari's and weapons of ash as we go along, and now we're ready to move on to Sir Gregor of House Clegane, the mountain that rides. The Stone Giant George R. R. Martin always depicts people in symbolic terms inside of dreams or visions, and since we are primarily concerned with symbolism here, we'll take a look at how Gregor appears in vision form. Think of the ghost of High Heart, who perceives people in terms of their sigils or personal symbolism, or think of Danny's visions in the House of the Undying of the Blue Rose, Jon Snow, or of the cloth dragon swinging on poles, Young Griff, a.k.a. Fagon. It's the same with the sigils themselves, Martin uses them to build up the set of symbols which apply to a certain character or house. A third technique for building up a character's personal symbolism is the type of language used to describe them in the main action of the text. For example, Melisandre's descriptors are always fiery. Some characters are often called a giant. And sometimes people have a moon face. Things like that. We'll take a look at Gregor's symbolism from all of these angles, starting with his appearance in a famous vision. This is Bran's coma dream vision of the three shadows from A Game of Thrones. There were shadows all around them. One shadow was dark as ash, with the terrible face of a hound. Another was armored like the sun, golden and beautiful. Over them both loomed a giant in armor made of stone. But when he opened his visor, there was nothing inside but darkness and thick black blood. Knowing what we know now, it's pretty easy to decode the celestial symbolism here. We have Jamie Lannister as the sun, but appearing as a shadow. There's our dark solar king, our darkened sun. He's golden and beautiful, but it's a terrible beauty, especially to Bran, who also sees Jamie's golden face in his reoccurring nightmares of falling from the tower. The second shadow belongs to the hound. It's as dark as ash to show us the black meteors in their hellhound form trailing ash as they fall, and of course kicking up a ton more ash when they land. It's a parallel to all the ashwood spears that we just took a look at. You'll recall from the last chapter where we examined Sandor and Sansa at King's Landing that the Hellhound figure seems to be another facet of Azor High Reborn. And of course, Azor High Reborn can refer to the surviving Red Comet or the Black Moon Meteors. The Hellhounds in particular seem to refer to the Meteors as opposed to the Comet. More on Hellhounds in a minute. Finally, we have the third shadow in Bran's vision, Gregor the Stone Giant. As you're about to see, the symbolism of Gregor as a stone giant is 100% consistent with Gregor's symbolism in the fight against Oberyn and elsewhere. The most important part here is the empty visor spewing darkness and thick black blood. That really clinches this interpretation of the stone giant in Bran's dream as being Gregor, because Gregor is eventually decapitated, leaving his helmet empty and dark, and his blood turned black. Here's the passage from A Storm of Swords, and this is Pycelle talking to the small council. The veins in his arms are turning black. When I leached him, all the leeches died. Of course, we mythical astronomers recognize this symbolism very well. Darkness and thick black blood is just another way of saying waves of blood and night, or black and bloody tide. The darkness and blood comes from the moon when it is decapitated, and this gives us the tip-off as to what role Gregor plays. He is the moon. 
We've seen that decapitating a moon figure is a good way to show the moon falling from the sky, such as with the eyeless skulls with sockets sweeping blood in Mel's vision of the black and bloody tide. You're going to get tired of me saying that, but there it is. And it works even better if the moon figure is a giant made of stone. The head of the stone giant would represent the moon in the sky, and when it's decapitated, darkness and thick black blood flow from the black hole that it leaves. The severed stone head becomes a storm of stony moon meteors, or hellhounds, burning through the atmosphere and trailing ash. The sun turns into a shadow sun as ash and smoke darken the sky and the long night falls. That's more or less the story that that vision is telling us from the mythical astronomy angle. Now when Gregor's skull is presented to the Martells by Ari's Oakheart's replacement, the white knight known as Sir Balin Swan, the skull is noted to shine in the candlelight as white as Sir Balin's cloak. Balin's cloak is that same pure white as Ari's Oakheart's white cloak, which was called as pale as moonlight, so by the transitive property of mythical astronomy symbolism, we're right back to the idea of a moon-pale skull. I can't help but notice that Gregor's skull is placed in a box of black felt, making it look all the more like a moon in the sky, and then it's placed on a pillar of black marble, perhaps to invoke the shadow tower, black tower idea we looked at last time, or perhaps just to keep it looking like it is suspended in space. Remember that if the moon or the sun in the sky is the head of a giant, then we were talking about giants with invisible bodies, and the mountain's head on a black pillar accomplishes much the same image. The third shadow in Brand's vision is called a giant in armor made of stone, and Gregor's stone giant symbolism is essentially ubiquitous. We know that he's often called a giant, and his nickname is the mountain that rides, or just the mountain. Mountains are giants made of stone, of course. Martin periodically uses the word giant to describe mountains in the books. But just to make sure we get the picture, he often describes Gregor in distinctly stony terminology. Hey man, you mean like stony? No, no, I don't. I mean like stone as in stone, like rock and stone. Now here's a good one, taken from a Game of Thrones, where one of the surviving victims of Sir Gregor's rampage through the Riverlands tells the tale. The one who led them, he was armored like the rest, but there was no mistaking him all the same. It was the size of him, my lord. Those as say the giants are all dead never saw this one, I swear. Big as an ox he was, and a voice like stone breaking. Giants and stone, once again. Mountains are made of stone, and a mountain that rides, that moves, creates the image of a flying stone, or perhaps a falling mountain. That's an apt fit for a falling chunk of moon, of course. If you decapitate a stone giant, you get a falling mountain. Think again of Aryo Hota's long axe, with its head mounted on a shaft of mountain ash. But think about it as the decapitated head of the moon mountain, falling through the sky like a blade and trailing ash. Mountain ash. When we recall that the Dothraki see the stars as fiery stallions, and that Daenerys perceives the red comet as Drogo's fiery stallion, we can see that the idea of a falling meteor as a mountain that rides makes a lot of sense. One even thinks of the stallion who mounts the world. Perhaps that's a reference to the mountain that rides. Most people see the stallion prophecy pointing towards Danny, Drogon, or both, and of course Danny is a symbol of the moon transforming into the red comet, while Drogon represents the moon transforming into black dragon meteors. Both are mountains that ride in that sense. I have some more ideas about the stallion who mounts the world, of course, but you know, another time. Gregor was called as big as an ox by the surviving villager in the past quote, and we've seen a lot of slain bulls symbolize the moon echoing the myth of Mithras and the White Bull. 
We'll see more bull language applied to Gregor in this fight, so I don't think it's a coincidence. The idea of his voice being like stone breaking kind of implies the moon breaking, which is, of course, how you get a falling chunk of moon. So now keep that in mind and listen to one of the first quotes about Gregor from the Trial by Combat chapter, where Tyrion sees Gregor step into the ring. Cersei seemed half a child herself beside Ser Gregor. In his armor, the mountain looked bigger than any man had any right to be. Beneath a long yellow surcoat bearing the three black dogs of Clegane, he wore heavy plate over chainmail, dull gray steel dinted and scarred in battle. Beneath that would be boiled leather and a layer of quilting. A flat-topped great helm was bolted to his gorget. With breaths around the mouth and nose and a narrow slit for vision, the crest atop it was a stone fist. If Ser Gregor was suffering from wounds, Tyrion could see no sign of it from across the yard. He looks as though he was chiseled out of rock, standing there. His great sword was planted in the ground before him, six feet of scarred metal. Ser Gregor's huge hands, clad in gauntlets of lobstered steel, clasped the cross hilt to either side of the grip. Even Prince Oberyn's paramour paled at the sight of him. You are going to fight that? Alaria Sand said in a hushed voice. I am going to kill that, her lover replied carelessly. Gregor is chiseled out of rock, perhaps out of moon rock? It seems like a match to his voice sounding like stone breaking. One way to say it would be that Gregor represents chiseling and breaking stone. His steel is dented and scarred. His sword is scarred too which could imply the craters of the moon and the general idea of a battered moon. Together with the stone fist, it all implies the moon exploding and turning into falling mountains that punch down through the atmosphere and land with a thud. Notice the language around Gregor's huge sword. It is planted in the ground. Earlier in the chapter, Tyrion breaks it down to Oberyn, telling him just how ridiculous Gregor is. He is almost eight feet tall and must weigh 30 stone, all of it muscle. He fights with a two-handed greatsword, but needs only one hand to wield it. He has been known to cut men in half with a single blow. His armor is so heavy that no lesser man could bear the weight, let alone move in it. Of course, a stone is a British unit of measurement, but it's one George doesn't use very often, so taken with the other references to Gregor being made of stone, I don't think it's a coincidence. Oberyn speaks of getting the mountain off his feet, and that's exactly what happens to the moon. Sir Gregor, the giant stone mountain that rides, is playing the role of the moon, but I think we can get more specific than that. He represents the moon breaking and turning into things. Gregor is a giant stony moon warrior that transforms into a black-blooded mountain that falls like a stone fist. His decapitation leads to darkness and waves of thick black blood. Oh my... Now, we've seen both solar characters and lunar characters transform into an Azor High Reborn figure because Azor High Reborn is the child of the sun and the moon. To call them all Azor High Reborn characters is true in a sense, but it's also an oversimplification. Each Azor High Reborn character shows us different aspects of the transition from either sun or moon into moon meteor. Don't think about them as all being exactly the same. The differences between the various characters show us important things about the moon disaster in Azor High Reborn. Danny's transformation shows us how the moon gives birth to dragon meteors and a transformed red comet, while Gregor's transformation tells a story about a variety of disasters which come from the fractured moon, such as the darkness, black blood, stone fists, and falling mountains. Gregor's status as a giant also implies giants waking in the earth, meaning earthquakes, 
which we'll discuss a bit later. As terrifying as all of that is, some people still don't take it seriously enough. Prince Oberyn was unimpressed. I have killed large men before. The trick is to get them off their feet. Once they go down, they are dead. That's quite true. We've seen that Lightbringer and the Moon Meteors are heavily associated with death when they come down from the sky, and that Azora High Reborn seems to have been a dead or undead person. We've talked a lot about those skulls with eyeless sockets representing Moon Meteors and Mel's vision of the Bloody Tide, and of course a skull is just an obvious death symbol. But that vision also seemed to foreshadow the resurrection of Jon Snow, an Azora High Reborn character, when Mel sees him as a man, then a wolf, and then a man again. This is also the dream where Mel famously asks to see Azora High and sees only capital S Snow. And so once again, we get the Azora High figure associated with resurrection. We've seen dead babies represent Lightbringer too, from would-be stallion who mounts the world and dead lizard baby, Rego, to Melisandre's shadow baby assassin. And even Ashara Dane's miscarriage fits the bill, since Ashara plays the role of Moon Maiden when she dies of a broken heart and leaps into the sea. I suppose now might be a good time to point out that Moon Tea in A Song of Ice and Fire is an abortifacient. I've been meaning to bring that up. I think it plays into the Moon Meteors and the Black Moon Blood as being poisonous and Azora High Reborn as being a dead person in some way. Of course, right at the outset of this fight, Gregor names the Red Viper as some dead man, and Gregor himself becomes the undead Sir Robert Strong after Kyburn does his Dr. Frankenstein thing. Now, I've mentioned this before, but A Song of Ice and Fire is really all about zombies. It only masquerades as historical fiction-flavored dark fantasy. It's really a much, much better version of The Walking Dead. Perhaps that's why HBO picked it up. Martin was all like, eh, Don't worry, it only seems like Tolkien-esque fiction fantasy, but it ends up as your standard zombie thing. You guys will love it. And I apologize to George Martin for that terrible impression. Forgive me, George if you ever listen to my podcast, which you won't. But anyways, returning to the idea of Gregor being a stone giant that becomes a riding mountain, also known as Azora High Reborn the Falling Meteor, it's worth noting that Mithras, one of the main inspirations for the Azora High fable, is born from a rock. That's the depiction of him commonly referred to as Rockborn Mithras, where he emerges from a stone holding the sword and torch. George has translated this idea into Azora High Reborn being a meteor which emerged from the moon rock, and this is why Gregor is made from stone and chiseled from rock, etc. Gregor is showing us the transformation of a moon into a flying rock, one which we know as Azora High Reborn and Lightbringer. So now check out this quote about Sir Gregor being born from a rock from a Game of Thrones. Sir Gregor Clegane's face might have been hewn from rock. The fire in the hearth gave a somber orange cast to his skin and put deep shadows in the hollows of his eyes. Notice what George has done with the firelight. His skin is lit up by fire, just as the moon drank the fire of the sun and was burned by its heat, but his eyes are hollows, deep in shadow, which sounds a lot like Melisandre's eyeless skulls and the heads with the empty eye sockets. This, of course, plays into all the bloody tears and blinding motifs associated with the moon. Then, just to reinforce the idea... Gregor hears the report from the sentry and commands that the outrider who didn't do his job should have his eyes torn out, and the man after him, and so on, until the job is done correctly. After shadow-eyed Gregor gives the command to have people's eyes torn out, we get a little sun-turning action. 
Lord Tywin Lannister turned his face to study Ser Gregor. Tyrion saw a glimmer of gold as the light shone off his father's pupils, but he could not have said whether the look was one of approval or disgust. I included this bit just to show the consistency of using eyes as symbols in this scene, as Tywin's golden eyes shine, in marked contrast to Gregor's shadowed hollow eyes. It just goes to show that George can manipulate things however he wants to create the desired symbolism. Two men stand in a room with a fire, but one man's eyes appear to shine with light while the other's eyes are lost in shadow. Why? Because the symbolism demands it, and so it is. The Tower of the Hand A moving or riding mountain is a great description of a large meteor just by itself, but the clincher is the stone fist atop Gregor's helm. You'll recall Bonero using his fist to symbolize the moon, which then opens in a burst of fire to become the fiery hand, flinging black meteors like flaming spears and spreading doom and darkness. Thus, Gregor's stone fist is entirely consistent with his status as a riding mountain and a moon warrior. Later in the fight, we'll see Gregor's actual hands used in interesting ways which add to the moon meteor fist imagery. And by interesting, I mean horrifically violent yet symbolically significant. Oberyn, our solar character, has somewhat of a matching symbol, his red gloves which suggest bloody hands. Why do both solar and lunar characters share in this fiery and bloody hand symbolism? The easiest way to picture it is like this. Imagine the moon as a sock puppet shaped like a hand. And when the sun stands behind the moon and sticks its fiery hand up the puppet's uh, puppet hole, I guess we'll call it, the puppet is animated with fire and becomes the fiery hand. If the sun is the king, the exploding moon can be seen as the hand of the king, the one which holds Lightbringer or which is Lightbringer. Naturally, this should be a bloody or flaming hand, like Oberyn's red gloves, John's burned hand or occasionally bloody hands, like Jamie's severed hand or Davos's severed fingers, Bonero's fiery hand, of course. Let's not forget Timot, the son of Timot, who is the red hand of the burned men in the mountains of the moon. And then, of course, we have the five-pointed red leaves of the weirwood tree, which are said to resemble bloody hands or a blaze of flame. You guys get the picture. The moon becomes the weapon of the solar king's wrath, which can be his hand or his sword or his black iron rose, and so on and so forth. Gregor shows us the moon turning into falling objects like riding mountains and stone fists, which is what the opening of the fiery hand is all about. All Gregor the stone fist is missing is a little drinking of the sun's fire, a little impregnation via sunspear, if you will. And that is, of course, exactly what Gregor has coming to him. We are well familiar with the idea that the tops of towers and mountains and people can symbolize heavenly bodies, so think about the fact that the hand of the king sits at the top of the Tower of the Hand, just as Gregor's stone fist is at the top of his head. Down in Sunspear, the ruling prince of Dorne sits atop the Tower of the Sun, and Oberyn, in turn, has a sun atop of his visor. It's almost like they're wearing name cards above their heads, like those stupid little Hello, My Name Is stickers that you have to wear at the big corporate company picnics. Hello, my name is Snaky Sunman. Hello, my name is Stonefist Moon Giant. How the kids? The stone fist, which is the fiery hand of the king, comes from the heavens, which can be depicted as the top of a tower, the top of a mountain, or the top of a person. In this case, it's the top of a person called the mountain whose flat-topped helm looks like a tower. 
George even places the Tower of the Hand between the two combatants like a kind of symbolic reminder. A platform had been erected beside the Tower of the Hand, halfway between the two champions. That was where Lord Tywin sat with his brother, Sir Kevin. The Tower of the Hand is the moon symbol, and so fittingly, right beside it, we have the solar tower with Tywin the lion sitting atop it. It's kind of creating an eclipse alignment with the solar tower next to the moon tower, depending on where you're standing, I suppose. We should be seeing signs of the eclipse here because this battle is a fight between the sun and the moon. We'll actually see several of them as we go along, and I think this might be the first. There's also a mention of the sun being hid behind the clouds and of the day being gray right after this. Just to follow up, the Tower of the Hand, symbol of the moon and moon fist, is eventually burned and collapsed in grandiose fashion. So now think of our other collapsed moon towers, such as Mel's Towers by the Sea in her vision, the Children's Tower at Moat Kalen with its broken crown, or the Tower of Joy. The burning of the Tower of the Hand scene is loaded with symbolism, so we'll certainly come back to that another time. In fact, it's a prime candidate for a chapter review. For now, I'm content to point out the tight correlation between the Tower of the Hand and Gregor's helm with its stone fist, and to briefly introduce the concept of the Hand of the King playing the moon role to the King's sun role. As I mentioned a moment ago, the fiery hand symbol comes about when the sun animates the moon fist with fire. You guys got that, right? In other words, the fiery hand is the child of the sun and the moon, just like Lightbringer. And just as both solar and lunar characters can show us the fiery or bloody hand symbolism, both sun and moon people can transform into an Azor Hyreborn character, as we've seen. Additionally, and for the same reasons, both solar or lunar warriors can wield Lightbringer weapons. The important thing to realize is this. Lightbringer is a child of the sun and the moon, and therefore can be depicted in the hands of either. Accordingly, Both our solar warrior and our lunar warrior in this fight will wield a version of Lightbringer, as we're about to see. Oberyn has his sun spear, while Gregor's huge longsword is described as flashing twice during the fight. Now on a basic human level, what we're talking about with mythical astronomy in general is people looking up at the sky at celestial events and thinking of creative allegorical ways to describe what they see. Since the moon explosion was preceded by an eclipse alignment, with the moon positioned in front of the sun, you can choose who you want to see as holding the comet sword, in other words. You can choose to see the whole thing as a battle between the sun and the moon, or as the copulation of two lovers. The comet might look like a sword or a spear or a dragon's tail, depending on your culture. It might even look like a sperm fertilizing a moon egg. That's the fun part about all of these myths we're talking about. How many different ways can George take this one event and spin it into little mini-fables? The answer is a whole damn lot. Some scenes give us very straightforward symbolism. Drogo is a sun, Danny is a moon, and when the moon wanders too close to the sun's fire, it creates an eclipse and the dragons hatch. Nice and clean. But other times, such as with this duel between Oberyn and Gregor, it's not so neat. Here's the thing you need to understand. George does not look at the various pieces, the sun, the comet, the moon, and the moon meteor children, and then divvy them up between Oberyn and Gregor like a draft. You get the sun and the comet, and he gets the moon and the moon meteors. No, it's not like that. Each character can use all of the elements. Each character is approached independently, which is why Oberyn and Gregor can both hold a weapon that symbolizes Lightbringer, and both can show us fiery or bloody hand symbols. 
And even though Gregor himself and his shield represent the second moon, Oberyn's shield, the sun mirror, can also represent the second moon. If you think about it, it kind of has to be this way. If both weapons in this duel symbolize the Lightbringer comet, then both shields need to represent the moon because Lightbringer strikes the moon. Oberyn's shield shows us the heliotropic, sun-drinking aspects of the second moon, and Gregor's shield shows us something completely different, which we're about to discuss. Said another way, when George designs Oberyn's symbolism, he's free to use all the celestial bits. The second moon, the sun mirror, sits in front of the sun to create the eclipse, and so you can easily perceive this as the sun holding a moon shield in front of him, with the comet as his spear, and that's essentially what we have with Oberyn. Seeing the moon as the sun's shield is basically the same thing as seeing the moon as the sun's hand, or as the sun's weapon. As for this fiery hand of the king, in order to become a falling fist or rain of steel fingers, that hand needs to get chopped off. And if you're thinking of Jamie's hand, yes, absolutely. But check out this quote from Jamie himself about Ares and the hands of the king who served him. But the Mad King was always chopping off his hands. He had chopped Lord John after the Battle of the Bells, stripping him of honors, lands, and wealth, and packing him off across the sea to die in exile, where he soon drank himself to death. That's John Connington, the Griffin Reborn, who is not quite dead, after all. As a reborn red griffin with flaming red hair, he makes a fine, fiery hand to be chopped off. The king is always chopping off his hands, you know? And now for a little comet-related pot of humor. You know how they say the king eats and the hand takes the shit? Well, more than one ancient culture regarded comets and shooting stars as the feces of stars. In other words, if the moon is the hand of the king, the cause of the long night could be said to be the hand taking a giant kingly star shit all over the place. Yes, you're welcome for that. One thinks of Tywin, the fiery hand of the king, whose shitty odor was remarked upon many times. I'm pretty sure there's some sort of Tywin shits gold star shit joke sitting here for me, but I'm just going to keep going. The Hounds of Hell Returning to Gregor's symbols, we have his sigil to consider. Three black dogs on a golden field. This means it's time to talk about Cerberus, the three-headed hellhound of Greek myth, and how it relates to the idea of a three-headed dragon. George's three-headed dragon idea, which is both the sigil of House Targaryen and some sort of cryptic prophecy about dragon riders, seems to be a kind of bastard offspring of Cerberus and the Hydra, a seven-headed sea dragon of Greek myth. Cerberus is the ultimate hellhound. He's called the Hound of Hades because he guards the entrance to the underworld and prevents the dead from leaving. As we've discussed, one ramification of the three heads has the dragon motif would be three large moon meteors which struck Planetos, with one of those perhaps exploding in the sky to create the thousand dragon meteor shower. This would of course parallel the three dragons which Daenerys hatched at the alchemical wedding. Therefore, I interpret the three black dogs to represent the three dragon meteors that come from the moon. This is just another way of saying that the hellhound idea applies to Azor High Reborn, the flying moon meteor. The golden field that forms the background of the Clegane sigil probably represents the sun, which was positioned behind the exploding moon. Again, the eclipse alignment. It's very like the Blackfire sigil, the three-headed black dragon on a field of red. Red and gold both work for the sun, and both are typically found with our solar characters, like Oberyn. 
Azor Ahai Reborn is associated with the color red and with the idea of a red sun. And of course, during an eclipse, the ring of the sun and the sky usually appear red. This interpretation is enhanced by the fact that Gregor has also painted over the three black dogs on yellow sigil on his shield with a seven-pointed star. As the fight progresses, the paint is scratched off by the sun spear and, it says, a dog's head peeped out from under the star, creating the image of a star which breaks apart to unleash three black apex predators, dogs instead of dragons. Gregor's shield tells the story of the long night. A moon star has its face scratched by a sun spear, and then we get three hellhounds, black dogs with fiery eyes. Pretty clever stuff, and again, if you're listening to this podcast, it's for moments like this. One of the reasons why I write and make this podcast is because this stuff George has done with symbolism and mythology is just too clever not to be able to share and talk about with you guys and gals. When Gregor's brother, the hound, Sander Clegane, fights a duel with the Zorahai stand-in, Beric Dondarrion, the three black dogs on his shield are set on fire and cut from the shield by Beric's flaming sword, which I believe is pretty much the same symbolism. There's even a point in that fight where Arya yells, You go to hell, hound! It's clever wordplay and a direct reference to Cerberus, the fiery three-headed hellhound. This also creates a parallel between Oberyn's spear, which uncovers the dogs on Gregor's shield, and Beric's flaming sword, which cuts the dogs free from Sanders. And this makes perfect sense if Oberyn's oily black spear is meant to be a lightbringer symbol, as I suggest. In Mythspeak, we'd simply say that the sun's flaming sword is really an oily black spear. We'll break down that scene in full sometime, as there's a lot going on there, including a flaming sword which is split in half, black blood, and one of the many Beric resurrections. This is also another prime candidate for a mythical astronomy chapter review. Last time, we saw the Hound take on the form of a Hellhound in Sansa's Moonblood scene in King's Landing, and in that scene, Hellhound Sandor is playing the role of Azor High Reborn. He's burned, covered in blood, transformed, and has the fiery glowing eyes of a dog. This corroborates the conclusion we just came to. The Hellhound is one aspect of Azor High Reborn, and refers to the Black Moon Meteors. We have an interesting Hellhound scene when Theon briefly occupies Winterfell in A Clash of Kings. He has a well-deserved nightmare of Bran and Rickon's direwolves having human heads and dripping burning black blood, chasing him through an antagonistic wood. Mercy, he sobbed. From behind came a shuddering howl that curdled his blood. Mercy, mercy! When he glanced back over his shoulder, he saw them coming. Great wolves the size of horses with the heads of small children. Oh, mercy, mercy! Blood dripped from their mouths, black as pitch, burning holes in the snow where it fell. Every stride brought them closer. Theon tried to run faster, but his legs would not obey. The trees all had faces. They were laughing at him, laughing, and the howl came again. He could smell the hot breath of the beasts behind him, a stink of brimstone and corruption. They're dead, dead. I saw them killed, he tried to shout. I saw their heads dipped in tar. We know what black blood signifies the fire transformation of the moon into the black bloodstone meteors which represent Azor High Reborn. The direwolf hellhounds in that scene are as big as horses, another prime meteor symbol, and sound very like dragons, with the burning black blood leaving smoking holes where it drips, just as Drogon's burning black blood does in the Daznax pit scene. They even smell of brimstone, just as the dragons do. All the scenes seem to agree. 
Hellhounds in general, and the wild dogs of House Clegane in particular, are associated with fire and can be used to symbolize the black moon meteors in Azor High Reborn. Therefore, it makes a great deal of sense when the star on Gregor's shield gives way to the three black dogs. It's pretty detailed mythical astronomy. Gregor is known as one of Tywin's dogs, along with Sir Amory Lorch and Vargo Hote, because of the raiding, burning, and pillaging they do on behalf of Lord Tywin. That's entirely in keeping with Tywin as the sun, and Gregor as a moon-turned hellhound meteor weapon. I like the fact that Tywin has three dogs, like the three dogs of the Clegane Sigil and three-headed Cerberus, it correlates to the idea of three moon meteor impacts and the three heads of the dragon motif. It also places the Solar King in the position of Hades, King of Hell, and that's a great match to how we have come to see Azor High, the King of Hell on Earth and the Nightlands, Avatar of the Lion of Night. It's also quite interesting because Hades famously stole a moon maiden, Persephone. A king of the underworld who steals moon maidens and commands hellhounds seems like the kind of thing Martin can work with, and we see that he's building on these ideas by having his Lord of Night, Azor High Reborn, steal a moon maiden, and by assigning the Hellhound as an aspect of Azor High Reborn, a.k.a. the Moon Meteors. We'll talk some more about Persephone when we return to the subject of Moon Maidens, whose abduction prevents spring from coming. It's a common theme in world mythology, and it's one Martin has seamlessly integrated into his Long Night mythos. The Long Night is the story of a reborn king of the afterlife and a stolen moon that causes a winter without end. To be accurate, I should note that the Greek underworld is not hell, quote-unquote, as Christians might think of it, but more of an afterlife, which is more typical of polytheistic religions. Also, my friend and fellow blogger Sweet Sunray has a terrific series of essays about Hades and Persephone and their correlation to Eddard and Lyanna Stark in the Crypts of Winterfell as a Catholic underworld realm on her amazing blog, Mythological Weave of Ice and Fire. Those are some of my very favorite A Song of Ice and Fire essays, so I highly recommend them for more fantastic analysis on the subject of Hades and Persephone. The Main Event Alright, so we've set the stage rather exhaustively. Oberyn is a spear-wielding sun, and Gregor is a moon star that turns into a stone fist. We're all clear on that. You're probably wondering if we're actually going to talk about the fight. So, let's get ready to rumble! The Dornish man slid sideways. I am Oberyn Martell, a prince of Dorn. He said, as the mountain turned to keep him in sight. Princess Elia was my sister. "'Who?' asked Gregor Clegane. Oberyn's long spear jabbed, but Sir Gregor took the point on his shield, shoved it aside, and bowled back at the prince, his greatsword flashing. Here begins Gregor's sun turning, which will go on throughout the fight. We see a bull reference hung on Gregor, and we'll see another a bit later in the fight. Gregor's sword flashes here, making it a sword of light, or perhaps even lightning, as in the storm god's thunderbolt from the Grey King myth. The long spear lanced in above his sword. Like a serpent's tongue, it flickered in and out, fainting low and landing high, jabbing at groin, shield, eyes. The mountain makes for a big target at the least, Tyrion thought. Prince Oberyn could scarcely miss, though none of his blows were penetrating Sir Gregor's heavy plate. The Dornish man kept circling, jabbing, then darting back again, 
forcing the bigger man to turn and turn again. Clegane is losing sight of him. The mountain's helm had a narrow eyeslit, severely limiting his vision. Oberon was making good use of that, and the length of his spear and his quickness. It went on that way for what seemed a long time. Back and forth they moved across the yard, and round and round in spirals, Sir Gregor slashing at the air while Oberon's spear struck at arm and leg twice at his temple. Gregor's big wooden shield took its share of hits as well, until a dog's head peeped out from under the star, and elsewhere the raw oak showed through. Oberyn and Gregor are acting like orbiting planetary bodies here, moving round and round in spirals. Oberyn circles, like the sun appears to do in the sky, while Gregor turns and turns again, creating the image of a moon turning on its axis. Of course, it's turning to follow the sun, a sun-turning heliotrope like the goddess Clytie in the heliotropium flower. We see the dog's head peeping out from the star as it is scratched by Oberyn's spear that I referred to earlier as telling the story of a three-headed monster emerging from the destroyed moon. The blindness motif appears again, with Gregor losing sight of Oberyn and Gregor's vision being severely limited. We also see a direct comparison between the spear and a serpent's tongue, confirming our association of these two symbols. I'm reminded of the death of Biter in A Feast for Crows, when Gendry shoves a sword through the back of Biter's throat, and Brienne sees his snake-like tongue turn into the bloody sword. Biter threw back his head and opened his mouth again, howling, and stuck his tongue out at her. It was sharply pointed, dripping blood, longer than any tongue should be, sliding from his mouth, out and out and out. Red and wet and glistening, it made a hideous sight, obscene. His tongue is a foot long, Brienne thought, just before the darkness took her. Why, it almost looks like a sword. Brienne is a character with rich symbolism that we'll dissect another time, although perhaps dissect is the wrong word given that Biter was just eating her face in that scene. But she is, at the very least, a maiden taken by darkness right at the moment that she sees the hideous, obscene, bloody sword. That's why Jamie and others are constantly calling Brienne a cow. That's a reference to cows and bulls as sacrificed moon symbols. And once again, we see the familiar signs that Lightbringer, the bloody sword, was obscene, an affront to the gods even. It was longer than any tongue had a right to be, just as the mountain was, quote, taller than any man had a right to be. The bloodstone emperor, Azor High, the maker of Lightbringer, challenged the gods and stole from heaven. He broke the moon, caused a long night, Practice dark arts, torture, and necromancy, yada, 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 you guys know the rap sheet. Every time we see these kind of associations with Lightbringer or Azor High, it only strengthens the conclusion that he was an evil dude with an evil sword who challenged the gods. Interestingly, this bloody sword turns out not to have been a sword at all, as we hear from Thoros later in A Feast for Crows. He's dead. Gendry shoved a spear point through the back of his neck. As we can see, bloody swords and bloody spears and bloody tongues are more or less interchangeable. Picking up the mountain and viper duel again, we see Gregor yelling at Oberyn to shut his bloody mouth, continuing this line of symbolism. As Gregor loses his temper, Tyrion notices that he doesn't use words, he just roars like an animal, which of course puts us in mind of a roaring dragon. It also implies Gregor being unable to speak, which will become a reality when he is resurrected as Sir Robert Strong the silent giant. Suns and moons losing their tongues and spitting things, being choked and silenced and having their throats slit. I believe that's the idea. 
It's definitely a running motif and needs further investigation to see what George might be saying with all this silence. I get the idea of the sun spitting fiery meteors and of the throat slitting of ritual sacrifice, but I feel like there is something more here as well. A lot of characters have their throats cut or speech taken from them in some way. Returning to the fight, we have a blow to the throat, which emits a loud screech. Are you raped her? He called, fainting. You murdered her! He said, dodging a looping cut from Grigor's great sword. You killed her children! He shouted, slamming the spear point into the giant's throat, only to have it glance off the thick steel gorget with a screech. Oberyn is toying with him, said Ilaria Sand. That is fool's play, thought Tyrion. The mountain is too bloody big to be any man's toy. The mountain's sword does a looping cut, which I think might again be meant to imply the approximately circular orbits of moons and comets. The references to toys here are worth pointing out. Check this out. This is great. The hound was burnt by his older brother Gregor for playing with his toy, which was a toy knight. Here, Tyrion says the mountain is too bloody big to be any man's toy. For a mortal, yes, but not for a god. We've seen the black blocks of Mote Kalin, which, like Gregor, are also meteor symbols, referred to as some gods' abandoned toys. And so we can see that Gregor, the stone fist in the mountain that rides, is indeed a toy knight, a god's toy. A bloody toy at that. That's a clever one by George, and another link between the oily black stone and the moon meteors. The fight continues with more bull symbolism. Gregor tried to bull rush, but Oberyn skipped aside and circled around his back. You've raped her! You murdered her! You killed her children! Be quiet! Sir Gregor seemed to be moving a little slower, and his greatsword no longer rose quite so high as it had when the contest began. Shut your bloody mouth! Gregor's flashing sword represents Lightbringer, which no longer rises as high as it once did. It's come down to earth a bit, you know? This might also be a direct reference to Venus, the morning star, which gradually rises less and less high above the horizon throughout its cycle until it finally switches over to the even star position, becoming Lord of Night. As for roses, we've seen them used as moon symbols, and we've seen sentences like Drogon rose, dark against the sun, and a red sun rose and set and rose again. In the fight scene here, the word rose is being used in a similar fashion, referring to Lightbringer and the Moonflower which holds it. Did I just call Gregor a flower again? I really gotta watch out for that. Guy has a temper. Shut up! Gregor charged headlong, right at the point of the spear, which slammed into his right breast, then slid aside with a hideous steel shriek. Suddenly, the mountain was close enough to strike, his huge sword flashing in a steel blur. The crowd was screaming as well. Oberyn slipped the first blow and let go of the spear, Useless, now that Ser Gregor was inside it. Did you catch that? Gregor got inside the spear. That's the moon inside the oily black sun spear. Get it? The moon is inside the sun spear because sun spears are made of moon. <laughs> this is George's sense of humor, folks, so I think it's worth taking a minute to enjoy it. He's certainly fond of puns and basically any kind of wordplay you can think of. Once the moon is inside the spear, our solar king Oberyn drops it, suggesting the idea of sun spears falling out of the sky. And don't forget, that's an oily black spear, so that's a moon getting inside an oily black spear and the sun dropping an oily black blade, yet another tie between the oily black stone and moon meteors. Right before this, 
the sun spear strikes the moon's breast, suggesting Nissanissa's bare breast, which was pierced by Lightbringer, and it's accompanied by another hideous steel shriek, a match for Nissanissa's cry of anguish and ecstasy, which cracked the moon. Gregor's sword flashes again, this time in a blur, which sounds like a suggestion of a glowing sword that looks blurry. Oberyn dodges the first blow, and then the second blow falls. The second cut the Dornishman caught on his shield. Metal met metal with an ear-splitting clang, sending the Red Viper reeling. This is a repeat of Nissa Nissa's cry, leaving a crack across the face of the moon. This time, Oberyn's mirror shield plays the moon roll, and the mountain sword the Lightbringer Comet roll. When the sword strikes the shield, there's a sound which is ear-splitting. Think of ear-splitting as head-splitting, and of the moon as a face, and once again, we have a sound which splits the moon's face open, just like Nissanissa's cry, which broke the moon. This ear-splitting clang sends the red viper reeling, which is a depiction of the sun being injured from the moon explosion. The language of the shield catching the flashing sword evokes the light-drinking heliotrope ideas. The sun mirror shield is catching the light of the flashing sword, which represents Lightbringer, just as the moon drank the sun's fire by ingesting the Lightbringer comet. By the way, I think there might be a three attempts to forge Lightbringer pattern here. I'm not entirely sure, but I thought I'd mention it. The three attempts to temper Lightbringer are made in water, a lion's heart, and then Nissa Nissa's heart. And in the fight scene, once the mountain gets inside the spear, the first and second blows are counted out. It says, Oberyn slipped the first blow, and then the second cut the Dornishman caught on his shield. Well, the word slipped kind of implies water, and Oberyn's dropped weapon might imply a failed attempt to forge Lightbringer. The second cut makes the ear-splitting sound, which might be a match for the second attempt in the lion's heart, where the sword shattered and split. I have interpreted that to refer to the splitting of the comet, so the word split in that line has always stood out as important. And here it is with the second cut from Sir Gregor. The third cut definitely finds a sacrificial victim, though it doesn't seem very much like Nissa Nissa. The stable was behind him. Spectators screamed and shoved at each other to get out of the way. One stumbled into Oberyn's back. Ser Gregor hacked down with all his savage strength. The Red Viper threw himself sideways, rolling. The luckless stable boy behind him was not so quick. As his arm rose to protect his face, Gregor's sword took it off between the elbow and shoulder. Shut up! The mountain howled at the stable boy's scream, and this time he swung the blade sideways, sending the top half of the lad's head across the yard in a spray of blood and brains. The stable boy is no moon maiden, and he doesn't have any obvious symbolism, but the face wound slash decapitation and spray of blood is a match for the idea of the moon decapitation or there being a crack across the face of the moon. Like I said, I'm not sure if George is meaning to imply the three forgings or not, but I thought I'd show it to you so you can judge for yourselves. Regardless, all the sounds and blows in the sequence give us great symbolism. Ear-splitting and shrieking sounds when a blow to the breast or mirror shield occurs, a rain of blood, a decapitation, a falling spear, the moon getting inside the spear. It's all pretty good stuff. Even better, I'm about to suggest that an arm wound inflicted by a Lightbringer symbol like Gregor's sword can symbolize the moon meteor which I believe struck the arm of Dorne and was remembered as the Hammer of the Waters. But hold that thought for just a couple paragraphs longer. The mountain world. Helm, shield, sword, surcoat. He was spattered with gore from head to heels. You talk too much, he grumbled. You make my head hurt. 
The mountain is whirling like a planet again, and now he's covered in gore. Gregor has become a true bloodstone moon, a stone covered in sacrificial blood. And I can't but wonder if there isn't a word pun in Gregor's name. His armor is always noted to be gray, and he gets covered in gore. Gray gore? It wouldn't be the first word pun in someone's name from George. In any case, Oberyn is making Gregor's head hurt, which makes sense because it is Gregor's head with its stone fist, which symbolizes the second moon. It contains darkness and thick black blood and will soon be separated from its body. The mountain snorted contemptuously and came on. And in that moment, the sun broke through the low clouds that had hidden the sky since dawn. The sun of Dorne, Tyrion told himself. But it was Gregor Clegane who moved first to put the sun at his back. This is a dim and brutal man, but he has a warrior's instincts. If Gregor is the moon then George has just created a solar eclipse, with the moon positioned in front of the sun. Let's see if anything exciting happens. The Red Viper crouched, squinting, and sent his spear darting forward again. Sir Gregor hacked at it, but the thrust had only been a feint. Off balance, he stumbled forward a step. Prince Oberyn tilted his dinted metal shield. A shaft of sunlight blazed blindingly off the polished gold and copper into the narrow slits of his foe's helm. Clegane lifted his own shield against the glare. Prince Oberyn's spear flashed like lightning and found the gap in the heavy plate, the joint under the arm, the point punched through mail and boiled leather. Gregor gave a choked grunt as the Dornishman twisted his spear and yanked it free. Elia! Say it! Elia of Dorn! He was circling, spear poised for another thrust. Say it! So, as soon as the moon warrior is positioned in front of the sun, he's hit by a poisonous sun spear. Who would have guessed? We would have, of course. Now we see the mirror shield trick, evoking the Serwin story and the concept of heliotrope as a sun mirror. Notice the parallels between the story of Perseus and the Medusa. The Medusa is a goddess with a head full of snakes, which correlates to our second moon that gave birth to dragons, and that's the role Gregor plays in the fight. Perseus turns the Medusa to stone with the mirror shield trick, while Gregor, blinded by the sun's reflection in the mirror, already is a stone giant. It's not a perfect one-to-one correlation with the Perseus myth, but all the elements are there, just reshuffled a bit. We'll talk more about Medusa a bit later when I revisit the idea of Sansa's black amethyst hairnet being symbolized as a head full of snakes. Oberyn's shield plays the role of sun mirror, and we know that heliotrope bloodstone is a sun mirror. In the Carthian legend, we are told the dragons can breathe flame because they drank the fire of the sun, just as bloodstone is seen as being imbued with the sun's energy and power, because it is a heliotrope, a sunstone, which soaks up the sun's energy. Oberyn's heliotrope mirror shield does the same thing here, drinking in the sun and then shining with the sun's fire and reflecting the sun's light like a spear shaft. Note the use of the word shaft to describe the light. Like Oberyn's shield, Gregor symbolizes the second moon, and he too is bathed in the sun's reflected fire. This occurs right at the moment that he's stabbed with the sun spear. The spear and the shaft of light are parallel symbols, just as they are on the sigil of Dorne, and just as the sun and the spear are said to be the two weapons of the Dornish. It may be that George is showing us a light and dark split, the bright shaft of sunlight and the oily black spear. It's kind of like when the shadow baby assassin, which takes the form of Stannis, wields a, quote, shadow sword, and it's called the shadow of a sword which isn't there. It's Lightbringer's shadow. Just as the line of night is the shadow aspect of the sun, 
and the maiden made of light is the bright aspect, it seems possible that Lightbringer itself may have such a dichotomy. And if this is the case, it seems to me that Dawn and Azor Ahai's black sword might well be that light-dark pairing. In any case, Gregor, being bathed in sunfire at the time of his mortal wounding, parallels the moon-dragon meteors of the Carthine myth drinking the sun's fire, and more generally, to the moon maiden being stabbed by Lightbringer, the flaming sword of the sun. It's also a parallel to the alchemical wedding, where Daenerys, the moon maiden, is quite literally bathed in the sun's fire as the dragon's eggs crack open. In addition to Gregor himself creating an eclipse, he also does it with his shield. We've seen Gregor's shield acting like a moon as well, a star which gives way to three black things. Gregor tries to block the reflected shaft of sunlight with his shield, evoking the moon eclipsing the sun and blocking its light. That's two eclipses for the price of one. At this important moment, the spear punches through the gap in Gregor's plate, echoing the stone fist imagery on Gregor's helm. The fist motif is emphasized later in A Storm of Swords, and this is Kyburn talking to Cersei. His squire tells me that he is plagued by blinding headaches and oft quaffs the milk of the poppy, as lesser men quaff ale. Be that as it may, his veins have turned black from head to heel, his water is clouded with pus, and the venom has eaten a hole in his side as large as my fist. Here we see the familiar blindness and black blood ideas associated with Gregor, and the venomous sun spear is again associated with the fist. Like Gregor's stone fist, the punching sun spear is playing into the larger symbolic theme of the fiery hand, which flings the black meteors. This reinforces what I was saying about both the solar and lunar warriors having weapons that symbolize different aspects of Lightbringer. Both Oberyn and Gregor have hand and fist symbolism, and they both have Lightbringer weapons, but they show us different things about Lightbringer. Gregor's fist emphasizes the stone and falling mountain ideas, and Oberyn's punching spear poisons, blackens blood, and leaves a hole. Gregor's fist shows us that the stone fists come from the moon, and Oberyn's punching spear shows us that the sun is the one which blackened and poisoned the moon rock. Oberyn's red gloves pretty much parallel Gregor's fist at the end of the scene, which is noted to be covered in blood at the high point of the action, right before he smashes Oberyn's face in. As for their weapons, it may be that light-dark dichotomy again, as we have a huge flashing sword and an ashwood spear with a black oily blade. So now the lightning. Lightning and the Thunderer. Prince Oberyn's oily black spear flashed like lightning when it stabbed Gregor in the arm during the Gregor eclipse. And of course, Oberyn's spear is a prime moon meteor symbol. This seems important, as I've been suggesting that both the Hammer of the Waters and the Storm God's Thunderbolt from the Grey King myth also refer to moon meteor impacts. It's kind of an intuitive thing, since the Hammer of the Waters and the Thunderbolt just kind of sound like falling meteors. Meteors were often called thunderstones by ancient people, and it's not hard to understand why. The thing is, if there really was a moon disaster in the ancient past, we should see many myths about falling meteors scattered around the world, and so as I began looking for stories which might be about falling meteors, those two just seemed to fit. The Grey King Thunderbolt myth, as well as the Sea Dragon legend, involves stealing the fire of the gods as well, and we've seen that that is a central part of the Lightbringer story. But it goes much deeper than that, of course. For a start, 
We know that Martin draws from Norse mythology quite a lot, and the Norse storm god is none other than Thor, the Thunderer, who has a famous ass-kicking hammer named Mjolnir, which causes lightning and thunder when it strikes. That's a pretty big clue to associate hammers and lightning and storm gods right there, especially because in the Grey King legend, it is the storm god who hurls the thunderbolt, just as Thor was a storm god. Thor's hammer and his thunderbolts are basically the same weapon, so if the hammer of the waters and the storm god's thunderbolt are both the same thing, moon meteors, it would really just make a damn lot of sense. And indeed, this seems to be the case. The hammer of the waters broke the arm of Dorne, and the Dornish city next to the broken arm is called Sunspear. A Sunspear is a pretty recognizable description of our flaming meteors, so I've always taken the naming of Sunspear next to the broken arm as a clue that the Hammer of the Waters was a Sunspear, a moon meteor. Oberon's spear having a steel point covered in black poison which looks like oil clues us into the fact that the Sunspears and moon meteors have something to do with the oily black stone that we find here and there. And then here in this battle, the first hit scored by the oily black Sunspear, the one which occurs during the eclipse and therefore symbolizes the forging of Lightbringer, is described as flashing like lightning and strikes the joint under Gregor's arm. As I mentioned, I think that these conspicuous arm wounds that occur during Lightbringer reenactments are a clue about the hammer of the waters which broke the arm of Dorne being a moon meteor. That's an awful lot of specific detail here to be coincidence, in my opinion, and it gets better. In addition to breaking the arm of Dorne, the hammer of the waters was also supposed to have flooded the neck, where the Cranogmen live, and here Gregor gives a choked grunt as his arm is hit. Perhaps that's a reference to the choking of the neck of Westeros. Earlier in the fight, the stable boy received the same set of wounds, a severed arm and a severed head. Gregor even strikes the second blow, which severs his head, specifically to silence him. He screams, shut up, as he kills him. And this may again be implying the throat cutting or strangulation to go along with decapitation. This is kind of a big deal, so we're going to pause the fight here and talk about the Hammer of the Waters for a bit. Having introduced the idea of a person's arm and neck wounds symbolizing the damage that the Hammer of the Waters did to Westeros, I want to follow it up on a bit so you guys know I didn't just jump into a tinfoil canoe and start paddling off in the wrong direction. If I'm going to claim to have solved the mystery, I have to offer up some corroborations. As usual, George hides his patterns everywhere, so there's no shortage of examples to cite. I won't quote them all by any means, but I will offer up a few of my favorites. These will all be examples of people taking the arm and neck wounds in the middle of a Lightbringer forging scene. I will refer to these as Hammer of the Waters injuries. We're also going to talk about Moat Kalin, the lore around the Hammer of the Waters itself, and giants waking in the earth. Okay, so remember the quote with Biter and Brienne and the bloody sword that was like a long tongue? Brienne actually has her arm broken near the end of that fight, and Biter tries to choke her and tear her head off. So, arm and neck wounds, and specifically a broken arm. There's a ton of lightning all throughout that scene, including some cool wordplay, which ties the hammer directly to the lightning. Brienne sucked in her breath and drew Oathkeeper. Too many, she thought, with a start of fear. They are too many. Gendry, she said in a low voice. You'll want a sword and armor. These are not your friends. They're no one's friends. What are you talking about? The boy came and stood beside her, his hammer in his hand. Lightning cracked to the south as the riders swung down off their horses. Did you catch that? One sentence ends with, 
his hammer in hand, and the next one starts with lightning cracked. There's a lot going on in this scene. It's another chapter review candidate for sure, but I had to mention it here because it ties the hammer and the lightning to broken arms and choked necks, all amidst Lightbringer symbols like the bloody spear tongue and Oathkeeper. Later, when Brienne wakes up and recalls the fight and her broken arm, we get another lightning reference. Even in the depths of dream, the pain was there. Her face throbbed, her shoulder bled, breathing hurt. The pain crackled up her arm like lightning. She cried out for a maester. Next, we have Sir Arius Oakheart of the Moon Pale White Cloak, who receives the same set of wounds from Arya Hota's Ash and Iron Wife, a severed arm and a severed head. It too comes amidst heavy, heavy Lightbringer forging symbolism. Right before Ario dismembers and decapitates Sir Ares, we get one of my favorite lines in the whole series, which I've been saving for just this moment. Arion Martell and Darkstar, a walking metaphor of that one, are traipsing around the Dornish desert, and there's a line which says, The sun was beating down like a fiery hammer, but it did not matter with their journey at its end. This is very clever wording, because the end of the journey symbolizes the landing of the fiery sun hammer. They are parallel journeys. Their journey ends with Ari's Oakheart taking the hammer of the water's injuries, head and neck, as well as Marcella, another moon maiden, being slashed across the face by Darkstar. I've mentioned that Darkstar is a Bloodstone Emperor symbol, which makes his face slashing of Marcella a Lightbringer forging scene to go along with Ari's Oakheart's hammer of the water's injuries. All of this occurs immediately after the sun beats down like a fiery hammer. Sir Ari's head lands amongst the reeds, which I think suggests a meteor impact which strangles the neck of Westeros, where House Reed reigns supreme. So instead of a dragonfly amongst the reeds, it's a dragon meteor amongst the reeds. Now you better believe that the first time I read this quote about the fiery hammer, it pretty much jumped off the page and hit me like a fiery hammer. And remember, this scene is in Dorne, next to where the hammer fell. The sun beat down like a fiery hammer and a sun spear, y'all. That's the deal. And if you're still not convinced, and I know you skeptics are out there, God bless you, one of the islands in the Stepstones is actually named Bloodstone. It's like a signature on a bathroom wall. Bloodstone was here. For a good time, call Azor High, etc. We have places called Bloodstone and Sunspear right by the broken arm, like giant We Did It signs. Watch out for fiery hammers and falling bloodstones. Those are dangerous. So, the Hammer of the Waters was a moon meteor with the name Bloodstone attached to it, and according to legend, Azor High broke the moon when he stabbed Nissa Nissa. This is yet more confirmation that the Bloodstone Emperor and Azor High are in fact the same person, the person who broke the moon and dropped the Hammer of the Waters. Said another way, the Hammer of the Waters was the cause of the Long Night. Check out this major clue about the hammer being the cause of the long night that George gave us way back in A Clash of Kings. Theon was about to tell him what he ought to do with his wet nurse's fable when Maester Lewin spoke up. The histories say the Cranogmen grew close to the children of the forest in the days when the Greenseers tried to bring the hammer of the waters down upon the neck. It may be that they have secret knowledge. Suddenly, the wood seemed a deal darker than it had a moment before, as if a cloud had passed before the sun. It was one thing to have some fool boy spouting folly, but maesters were supposed to be wise. That's a pretty clear one. The hammer is discussed, and then everything darkens, as if something was clouding the sun. 
I should mention that I don't think the children of the forest dropped the hammer, not exactly, and certainly not to stop the first men, though we'll have to discuss that more another time. But consider the logical inconsistency in this quote. If the children grew close to the people who lived in the neck, the Cranogmen, why would they try to destroy the home of the Cranogmen? I mean, personally, I don't see the children doing anything to destroy the earth. I believe they would kill people if it was in the best interest of the earth, call them very aggressive environmentalists, perhaps, but causing massive earthquakes and having anything to do with breaking the moon and causing the long night really doesn't seem like something they would do, in my opinion. There are two different locations which are said to be the place where the green seers called down the hammer, and those are the Isle of Faces and the Children's Tower at Mokalen. Now, the latter doesn't make any sense at all, because the hammer damaged the neck where Mo Kalin is. That's like dropping a hammer on yourself. And since when do the children of the forest hang out in black castles and cast spells from the tops of towers? I mean, that sounds more like someone else we know all too well, right? Performing cataclysmic blood magic from the top of a tower made of black stone, which may or may not be oily? I don't know. The children's tower itself has a few clues for us. I mentioned before that this tower has a broken crown and that it's slender as a spear. We talked about this applying to the slender as a spear maidens that we see on occasion, but given what we've seen with Oberyn's spear, this stands out as a pretty awesome oily black spear reference and directly associated with the hammer of the waters. As icing on the cake, I will also tell you that when Rob's party originally came down the causeway and stopped at Moat Kalen for a night, there were three standards noted to have been raised over the towers that are left standing. Rob unfurls the direwolf of Stark above one tower, the Karstarks put their white sunburst sigil above another, and above the children's tower, the Umbers place their giant in shattered chains. And the old gods stirred, and giants awoke in the earth, and all of Westeros shook and trembled. Great cracks appeared in the earth, and hills and mountains collapsed and were swallowed up. And then the seas came rushing in, and the arm of Dorne was broken and shattered by the force of the water, until only a few bare rocky islands remained above the waves, or so the legends say. That last bit was taken from the section about the hammer of the waters in the world of ice and fire. The only edit I would make here is that instead of saying the seas came rushing in, I would say that it was the sea dragon that came rushing in and broke the arm of Dorne. Otherwise, Yandel pretty much nails it here. Damn it, sea dragon, not sea lion. And remember, one of those bare rocky islands that remains is called Bloodstone. And if you think I'm going to mention that again, you're right. I wrote two giant essays about Bloodstone and its correlation to A Song of Ice and Fire, so you have to understand how excited I was when I looked at the map and saw Bloodstone in the middle of the broken arm. Then I saw Oberyn stick his oily black blade into Gregor's arm. Well, this is the stuff dreams and podcasts are made of, my friends. It was actually only after I put all that together that I recalled that Thor's hammer shoots lightning and thunder. Now, speaking of giants waking in the earth as a metaphor for an earthquake, Gregor, the stone giant, gives us this symbolism early on in the fight. There were 50 yards between them. Prince Oberyn advanced quickly. Sir Gregor more ominously. The ground does not shake when he walks, Tyrion told himself. That is only my heart fluttering. Gregor represents the various disasters that come from the moon. The black blood, darkness, stone fists, and riding mountains, and I think we can add earthquakes to the mix. 
Comets and meteor impacts can in fact cause earthquakes, particularly if they land near a fault line. And even ones that explode in the atmosphere, like the meteor which caused the Tunguska event, measure on the Richter scale like an earthquake. Now I've noticed that all the characters who take the hammer of the water's arm and neck wounds are giants in some sense. So Gregor is a stone giant, that much is clear. Sir Ari's oak heart descends from John the Oak, who was sired by Garth the Green on a giantess, according to legend. Brienne is freakish tall and may even be ascendant of Sir Duncan the Tall, a.k.a. Dunk of Duncan Egg, who was also called a giant. Dunk's horse is named Thunder, for what it's worth, and he both takes and gives out significant arm wounds in his battle with Sir Lucas Longinch at the climax of The Sworn Sword. The poor stable boy, who loses his arm and then his head to Sir Gregor's sword, isn't a giant, but another stable boy we know all too well certainly is, and that's Hodor, who has interesting symbolism in his own right, which we'll get to in due course. Tyrion has one of these arm and neck wound incidents too, and he is called a giant many times. My giant of Lannister, ooh! All of these giants take wounds that represent the earth, and giants wake from the earth. A moon meteor can surely cause an earthquake, and the hammer of the waters woke giants in the earth and certainly caused a great earthquake. All of this makes me think that these giant characters who take the hammer of the waters injuries are representing the earth itself, the giants that wake in the earth, or perhaps the union of meteor and the earth. Gregor's stone fist shows us a meteor pounding the earth, so it seems that this is the key. The characters are showing us transformations from one state into the next. The transformation from moon meteor into part of the earth is what wakes the giants in the earth, and so we see moon meteor characters who are giants take the hammer of the water's injuries. That's my thinking. At the end of the last passage where Gregor makes the earth tremble, there's a bit about Tyrion having a fluttering heart, which sounds like a heart with wings that can fly. The meteors can be described as the heart of a fallen star, or as a fiery heart such as we see on Stannis' banners. Tyrion, meanwhile, is a son of the sun and in all likelihood a dragon spawn, so the idea of him having a fluttering heart creates the image of a flying and burning meteor heart, the one we know as Azor High Reborn. We kind of ignored Tyrion during this chapter because I eventually want to deal with Tyrion on his own, but the idea of him being a child of the lion and the dragon fits in with him being an Azor High Reborn type, and more specifically, one of the three heads of the dragon. At the very end of this chapter, he's dragged down the serpentine steps to the black cells and calls himself a dead man. That's reinforcing the idea of Azor High Reborn as a dead man very nicely, and of course we like the serpentine reference. What's that you say? You like Tyrion? Why am I teasing you like that and not giving you more Tyrion? Well, okay, just a little more Tyrion. As I mentioned, Tyrion is many times described as a giant. My giant of Lannister, for example, and also when Maester Aemon says that Tyrion is a giant come among us here at the end of the world. That's a pretty nice one, a giant which comes among us at the end of the world. Sounds a little catastrophic. The point is, Tyrion the giant undergoes the Hammer of the Water's injuries at the Battle of the Green Fork in A Game of Thrones. Now as you listen to this, imagine Tyrion as the moon being knocked from the sky, and recall that not only does the Latin word Lucifer mean lightbringer, but also morning star. The night came thundering down on him, swinging the spiked ball of a morning star around his head. Their war horses slammed together before Tyrion could so much as open his mouth to shout for Bronn. His right elbow exploded with pain as the spikes punched through the thin metal around the joint. His axe was gone as fast as that. 
He clawed for his sword, but the morning star was circling again, coming at his face. A sickening crunch, and he was falling. He did not recall hitting the ground, but when he looked up, there was only sky above him. He rolled onto his side and tried to find his feet, but pain shuddered through him, and the world throbbed. The knight who had felt him drew up above him. Tyrion the Imp! He boomed down. You are mine! Do you yield, Lannister? Yes, Tyrion thought, but the word caught in his throat. He made a croaking sound and fought his way to his knees, fumbling for a weapon. His sword, his dirk, anything. Do you yield? The knight loomed overhead on his armored warhorse. Man and horse both seemed immense. The spiked ball swung in a lazy circle. Tyrion's hands were numb, his vision blurred, his scabbard empty. Yield or die, the knight declared, his flail whirling faster and faster. That's a pretty spectacular one. A thundering morning star knocking our giant moon character out of the sky and punching and exploding his arm. Not so sweet for Tyrion, but it's terrific mythical astronomy. Tyrion claws for his sword, perhaps implying dragon claws like a true moon dragon. He had an axe in hand until he was hit with the morning star, whereupon he lost it just as Gregor's sword flies from his hand when he's hit with a lightning-like sunspear. Tyrion seems to have lost his sword on the way down as well, which is more the same idea. We also see the neck wound implied, as Tyrion's words catch in his throat, and he croaks like a frog. And the implication of frogs, in turn, implies the neck, where the frog-eaters live. No offense to Cranach Man, of course. Notice the line about the world throbbed. That's our giants waking in the earth, surely, and right as Tyrion falls from the sky and lands on the earth. The Northman who felled him, meanwhile, looms immense overhead with his orbiting morning star, his voice booming. Of course, Tyrion is able to turn the tide when he stands up and accidentally kills the horse of his foe, causing the horse to fall atop his enemy and... break his arm. It's particularly notable that this battle took place at the Green Fork, the same place where Robert's mighty warhammer felled a dragon in night-black armor. Not only is this significant because it features a very famous hammer and a black dragon falling into the water, but also because it takes place at the crossing of a body of water which lies between two landmasses, now known as the Ruby Ford. The same goes for the fight between Ario and Ares, where Ares takes the arm and neck wounds. Ares is chopped up as he and his horse leap over the river onto the boat. Sir Duncan and Lucas Longinch also had their fight in a stream between the lands of two rivals. The reason for all of this is apparent. The Arm of Dorne is a crossing, or at least it was. Creating Hammer of the Waters metaphors at a crossing of a body of water simply adds detail to the picture, and it's pretty consistent. Also, keep an eye out for broken bridges and bridges in general. It's the same idea. The Arm of Dorne was a land bridge. So now, here is the recounting of Robert and Rhaegar's famous battle in the Trident from an Eddard chapter of A Game of Thrones. They had come together at the ford of the Trident while the battle crashed around them. Robert with his warhammer and his great antlered helm, the Targaryen prince armored all in black. On his breastplate was the three-headed dragon of his house, wrought all in rubies that flashed like fire in the sunlight. The waters of the trident ran red around the hooves of their destriers as they circled and clashed again and again, until at last a crushing blow from Robert's hammer stove in the dragon and the chest beneath it. 
when Ned had finally come on the scene, regularly dead in the stream, while men of both armies scrabbled in the swirling waters for rubies knocked free of his armor. I've always liked that line about Robert's hammer having stove in the dragon, because the dragon here represents the second moon, and the second moon is something of a stove, if you will. Now what we have here is a hammer crushing a dragon who falls into the water, instead of a hammer dragon crashing into the water, but for symbolism's sake, the pattern is there. Rhaegar is a dead and bloody black dragon with a black heart lying in the water where the ford is, just as the island bloodstone sits in the crossing of the narrow sea among the stepstones. Rhaegar's blood and his fiery rubies both fall into the green fork, giving us the image of fiery bloodstones falling from the sky and landing in the water at the place where the hammer fell. Here we see the original bloodstone coloring for what it's worth, splashes of red blood and rubies on green, the green fork. This exact image also occurs in the Arya Hota scene, as Sir Ari's bloody head lands in the river called the Green Blood, and the line is, the green blood swallowed the red with a soft splash. Rhaegar is also depicting the idea of bloodstone being submersed in water to create the image of blood in the water, a trick we often see with the sea dragon. In The Princess and the Queen, George's short story about the infamous Targaryen civil war known as the Dance of the Dragons, we learn that Daemon Targaryen, who rides the red dragon bloodworm, sets himself up as king of the narrow sea and takes bloodstone for his seat. Pretty cool. Daemon is somewhat of a usurper here, fittingly, and he's even usurping his sibling, just as the Bloodstone Emperor usurped his sister, the Amethyst Empress. Worms and serpents and dragons are all virtually interchangeable, as we've said, and so the red dragon, known as the Bloodworm, is a symbolic match to the red viper, Oberyn Martell, and of course to the idea of a flaming red sword or a flaming red comet. Daemon's sword was Dark Sister, which I've long suspected is a reference to the second moon, a Dark Sister to the remaining one. Daemon uses Dark Sister to blind his nephew, Aemond One-Eye Targaryen, in a dragon-on-dragon battle above the God's Eye Lake, which plays into the running motif of the moon and occasionally the sun having its eyes torn out, and of the falling meteors being like fiery eyes. There's another element to this family of symbolism, which is the concept of the God's Eye, but we have to save that for another essay. That one is mostly written and will be coming up soon, so stay on the lookout for that. Most notable about Daemon's dragon dance with Aemond One-Eye are the dragons falling like thunderbolts and landing in the water. This is particularly satisfying because it combines the thunderbolt and the sea dragon all at one. The attack came sudden as a thunderbolt. Caraxes dove down upon Vagar with a piercing shriek that was heard a dozen miles away, cloaked by the glare of the setting sun on Prince Aemond's blindside. The bloodworms slammed into the older dragon with terrible force. Their roars echoed across the god's eye as the two grappled and tore at one another, dark against a blood-red sky. So bright did their flames burn that the fisherfolk below feared the clouds themselves had caught fire. Caraxes, the bloodworm, attacks while hidden in the glare of the sun. That means he's between Aemond One Eye and the sun, creating a dragon eclipse as the sun sets. They are dark against the blood-red sky, reminding us of Drogon turning dark against the sun and Dark Star standing outlined by a dying sun, and also of Lyanna's blue roses blowing across a blood-streaked sky. This scene gives the whole picture. Dragon eclipse, sun setting, blood in the sky, the clouds catching fire, dragons falling like a thunderbolt, and then finally the sea dragon, as both dragons lock together and fall into the sea. Pretty sweet. 
Saving the best for last, one of the very finest clues about the breaking of the Arm of Dorne occurring when Lightbringer was forged comes in Danny's alchemical wedding. I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating, and here it is. This is the second dragon's egg cracking in the pyre. And there came a second crack, loud and sharp as thunder. And then the third egg. With a belch of flame and smoke that reached 30 feet into the sky, the pyre collapsed and came down around her. Unafraid, Danny stepped forward into the firestorm, calling to her children. The third crack was as loud and sharp as the breaking of the world. So there you have it. The cracking of these dragon's eggs represents the cracking of the moon, and here we see one that is like thunder, and one that is like the breaking of the world. The breaking of the world is a pretty good match for the hammer of the waters, which literally broke a single landmass in two. This came about as the result of the moon giving birth to dragons. The thunderbolt too, it seems, can be traced to the waking of moon dragons. All of this happened when the comet came by, when there was a firestorm and smoke rose high into the air, when the sun and moon burned together in holy wedlock. And with that, I rest my case. The hammer of the waters was a moon meteor, and it fell during the time of the long night, and indeed, it brought on the long night. If I am correct that Azor High was in some way responsible for cracking the moon, that means that either the story of the children of the forest calling down the hammer is wrong, or there must be some sort of overlap or collaboration between Azor High and the children of the forest. Gosh, that seems like a subject someone should write a podcast about. Who knows, maybe someone will. Finish him. Fatality. We aren't done with Oberyn and Gregor, so let's go back to the trial by combat. We pause the action right after Oberyn finally succeeded in giving the mountain a tickle with his poison spear, and that's where we will pick it up. Prince Oberyn had circled behind him. Eliam Dorn! Ser Gregor started to turn, but too slow and too late. The spearhead went through the back of the knee this time, through the layers of chain and leather between the plates on thigh and calf. The mountain reeled, swayed, then collapsed face first on the ground. His huge sword went flying from his hand. Slowly, ponderously, he rolled onto his back. Gregor is still turning like a heliotrope, but too slowly. He's struck from behind. What does this mean, I wonder? Was the moon struck from behind? Is this a dark side of the moon joke? Gregor's arm and neck wounds match the wounds of the planet, but Westeros doesn't have an area named after a leg or a knee. Whatever the case, after being struck by the spear again, Sir Gregor collapses face first on the ground, creating the perfect image of a moon face falling to earth. I've noticed that the hammer of the water's injuries usually occur when someone is falling to the ground or is about to fall, I suppose because when they lay flat on the ground, it makes them look more like a map. Makes sense, right? Since Gregor fell face first, the stone fist on Gregor's helm would have struck the earth along with his face, reinforcing the fist aspect of the moon meteor family of symbolism. Most importantly, his huge sword goes flying from his hand. That's perfect. The moon is knocked off its feet and out of the sky, and that's exactly when huge flying Lightbringer swords should appear. And it's a bloody huge sword, have no doubt. Brandon would have liked the sight of it, we can be sure. We've got a lot of flying weapons here, actually, and a flying snake as well. The Dornishman flung away his ruined shield, grasped the spear in both hands, and sauntered away. 
Behind him, the mountain let out a groan and pushed himself onto an elbow. Oberon whirled, cat quick, and ran at his fallen foe. Elia! He screamed as he drove the spear down with the whole weight of his body behind it. The crack of the ashwood shaft snapping was almost as sweet a sound as Circe's wail of fury, and for an instant, Prince Oberon had wings. The snake has vaulted over the mountain. Four feet of broken spear jutted from Clegane's belly as Prince Oberon rolled, rose, and dusted himself off. He tossed aside the splintered spear and claimed his foe's greatsword. Oberyn flings away his ruined sun mirror shield, which perfectly depicts the sun destroying the moon, which was a sun mirror, and knocking it out of the sky. It's a match for Gregor's shield, the star that gives way to three black dogs. The flying snake is a clear reference to a dragon, and the cat quick line is likely meant to imply the lion of night and solar lions in general. The snake vaulting over the mountain sounds like a celestial snake flying through the vault of the sky, thrusting its sun spear in the moon's chest, just as Lightbringer was thrust into Nissanus's heart. There's an image of the comet splitting here, too. Flying snake Oberyn and his serpentine sun spear are one, until colliding with the moon mountain, but they are split as Oberyn leaves the spear in Gregor's chest and flies over him. That's exactly the image of the comet splitting, with one half striking the moon and the other half flying through and past the explosion. I think it's a really nice, detailed parallel here. And the spear itself also breaks, which gives us another version of the split comet motif. The loud crack of the spear shaft as our moon figure is impaled calls to mind the loud cracks we saw in Danny's alchemical wedding scene, which were as loud as the breaking of the world and as loud as thunder. You'll notice the crack of the shaft is noted to be as sweet as Circe's wail. Circe is a widow, so her wail is in fact a widow's wail of anguish. No ecstasy this time. Sorry, Circe. Actually, ecstasy is implied because the same sound that enrages Circe is noted to bring sweet joy to Tyrion. Post-impact Oberyn the Sun Warrior rose like the sun, but he was all dusty and brushes the dust off of himself. That sounds like a sun which is obscured by the dust and debris of the moon collision, and the brushing off of the dust implies dust and debris filling the air, falling from the sun-moon conjunction. Finally, Oberyn the Sun Warrior claims the sword which came flying from the moon. That's the Bloodstone Emperor Azor Ahai making his sword from a piece of moon. This is a really important detail, so I'll say it again. After the moon crashes to earth, the Red Viper walks over and picks up the sword that came from the moon. And now to the grisly end of the fight. Ser Gregor tried to rise. The broken spear had gone through him and was pinning him to the ground. He wrapped both hands about the shaft, grunting, but could not pull it out. Beneath him was a spreading pool of red. The moon is down and cannot rise. It's no longer in the sky. It disappeared and it's stuck on the earth. Beneath Gregor is a spreading pool of red, depicting the moon blood and the moon flood, which we discussed extensively in episode 3, Waves of Night and Moon Blood. But just when our Bloodstone Emperor character is about to finish things off, Lightbringer in hand, the moon has its revenge. Clegane's hand shot up and grabbed the Dornishman behind the knee. The Red Viper brought down the greatsword in a wild slash, but he was off balance, and the edge did no more than put another dent in the mountain's vambrace. Then the sword was forgotten as Gregor's hand tightened and twisted, 
yanking the Dornishman down on top of him. And then the sword was forgotten. I guess that means we'll never actually find Azor Ahai's black sword. Either that, or it's hiding in plain sight, and everyone has forgotten what it really is. Now in the original Long Night disaster, moon meteors crash to the earth, but fill the air with smoke and debris and blot out the sun. This is the mutual annihilation I've been referring to. First the sun kills the moon, but the moon reaches out from the grave and strikes back, just as mortally wounded Gregor reaches up with his fist and pulls Oberon down. At least, that's one way of seeing it, and that's how it's being depicted here. Keep in mind, however, that the sun is not just killed, but transformed into a night sun, a black sun, a black hole, a dark star, etc. Or perhaps, you might even say, a dead sun. Besides the smoke and debris of the meteor impacts on the planet, a cloud of smoke and ash would also gradually spread outward from the broken moon itself, like waves of night which hide the sun's face and transform it into the dark sun of the long night. This spreading darkness is the same as Lord Tywin's army unfolding like an iron rose. It's one facet of Lightbringer, the shadow sword aspect, you might call it. This implies that forging Lightbringer not only transformed Nissa Nissa, but also Azor Ahai. Blood magic doesn't come without cost, of course, and it seems Azor Ahai was transformed through his dark deeds. Recall that steel shriek of the spear hitting the moon's chest that sent Oberyn reeling. It's the same idea. There's a couple of things here to corroborate this notion of the moon's revenge taking the form of the clouds of smoke and ash. Consider the broken spear that is planted in the mountain's chest. It's four feet of ash. That's very like a column of ash rising from the fallen moon rock. And there's one more a second later, right before the killing blow. As he drew back his huge fist, the blood on his gauntlet seemed to smoke in the cold dawn air. Gregor's fist represents the stone fist motif, and it's covered in blood and smoking. It's a bloody, smoking bloodstone, just as the ash wood depicts a column of smoke rising from Gregor himself. His bloody, smoking fist is the thing which pulled down the sun and which smashed the sun's face in. I'll spare you the particular quote, and we all know how it goes. Point is, I believe this lunar vengeance rising up to kill the sun is the smoke which rose from the moon meteor impacts. You'll notice that at the alchemical wedding scene, the smoke rising high into the air from the pyre of the Sun King is remarked upon, and it's far from the only example. It's all over the place, actually. We saw it at the end of the Dragon Rider vs. Dragon Rider battle between Daemon Targaryen and Aemon One-Eye, albeit disguised in watery form. Half a heartbeat later, the dragons struck the lake, sending up a gout of water so high that it was said to have been as tall as Kingspire Tower. By comparing the gout of water to a tower named King's Pyre, he's created the image of a pyre of smoke towering into the air. Those falling dragons represent Azor High Reborn, the dark solar king in meteor form, and so we can see that when the king makes his landing, it throws up a king's pyre. Think again of the greasy smoke rising from solar king Khal Drogo's funeral pyre, and you can see that this is a running motif. As a bonus, my friend from the Westeros.org forums known as Mithras has predicted that the wildfire caches under King's Landing will be set off before the end of the story, and King's Landing will burn and be destroyed. I have to say, it makes a lot of sense and does fit the symbolism. We've already seen King Stannis land at King's Landing and fill the air with smoke during the Battle of the Blackwater, when Sansa has her moonblood scene up in one of the Towers of the Red Keep. Another great example of the column of smoke coming from a moon dragon meteor landing is found in the third Duncan Egg novella, the Mystery Knight, and so here we will take a detour 
for some Dunkin' Egg action. I love the Blackfire Rebellion's first album, but everything after that... Okay, now just leave Oberyn and Gregor right where they are for a minute, frozen in time like the Matrix. We're more or less done with the fight, there's just a couple other details to wrap up. But let's roll with this idea about the column of smoke rising from the moon meteor dragon landing for a bit, and talk some Dunkin' Egg, because this is an important idea, and everyone likes Dunkin' Egg. When I say it's an important idea, consider that this is essentially the mechanism which causes the long night. It's the smoke and ash thrown up by the landing of the meteors which blots out the sun. So, if Martin wants us to figure this out, then he's got to show us this smoke. And in fact, it does appear in many, many scenes. Now, this scene is from the conclusion of the Mystery Night, when Lord Bloodraven has come to White Walls to put down the more or less impotent Second Blackfire Rebellion. In the end, the second Daemon Blackfire rode forth alone, reigned up before the royal host, and challenged Lord Bloodraven to single combat. I will fight you, or the coward Ares, or any champion you care to name. Instead, Lord Bloodraven's men surrounded him, pulled him off his horse, and clasped him into golden fetters. The banner he had carried was planted in the muddy ground and set afire. It burned for a long time, sending up a twisted plume of smoke that could be seen for leagues around. That's a black dragon banner burning there and sending up the twisted plume of smoke. Think of the black dragon meteors burning as they fall to the ground, landing, and sending up twisted plumes of smoke. That's the idea. In the Ironborn legend of the Grey King stealing the fire of the Storm God, the Grey King accomplishes his fiery theft by tricking the Storm God into setting a tree ablaze with his mighty thunderbolt. Thus, burning trees are directly linked to the thunderbolt, and here the burning black dragon standard is planted in the ground like a tree. And it was the same with Gregor's longsword at the beginning of the fight. Weirwoods, the screaming trees whose leaves are like a blaze of flame, may tie into this burning tree motif as well. Only a page before Damon the Second Blackfire, a.k.a. John the Fiddler, rode out to be captured and had his banner burned, there is a parallel event. Damon was unhorsed in a joust by Sir Glyndon Ball, a.k.a. Fireball. Fireball's sigil is the most comet-like of any sigil in A Song of Ice and Fire, I'm sure you'll agree. It's literally a streaking ball of fire on a night-black field. This duel between streaking fireball and black dragon creates the image of a fiery comet slamming into the second moon, the moon which becomes the black dragons. Check out the quote here. Somewhere in the east, lightning cracked across a pale pink sky. Damon raked his stallion side with golden spurs and leapt forward like a thunderclap, lowering his war lance with its deadly iron point. Damon's black stallion emerges, riderless, as Damon himself lies face down in the mud and the crowd jeers about the brown dragon. Damon, the black dragon, or brown dragon, as it may be, is planted in the mud just like his black dragon banner is planted in the mud before it burns and sends up the plume of smoke. The language here very nicely ties the lightning to the black dragon, as Damon's charge is worded as the answering thunderclap to the lightning which flashes in the sky. I don't mean to beat a dead horse here, (laughs) but I think this is another clue about the thunderbolt of the storm god in the Grey King myth being a black moon meteor, a black fire dragon. The idea of this entire scene showing us black meteors landing is reinforced as Dunk later goes out to Bloodraven's tent, 
and sees the severed heads of two of the Blackfire conspirators mounted atop spears, Lord Gorman Peak of Starpike and Black Tom Heddle of Whitewalls. Severed heads on spears? Hmm, we know what that's about. First of all, consider the word Starpike. We could be talking about a star which is a pike, as in the spear-like weapon known as a pike, in which case we would have a star spear. If we're talking about the fish called a pike, then we would have a star which falls into the sea and becomes a fish. A sea dragon, in other words. Starpike's sigil, which Dunk sees on the shield planted in the ground before the severed head, is of three black castles on a field of orange. So again we have the implication of the three-headed dragon and the three black dragon meteors. The castle aspect of it makes us think of the fortresses built of oily black stone, such as Moat Kalin, Yin, and the entire city of Ashai, and also of the black castles of other Azor High figures like Dragonstone, that would be Aegon, Rhaegar, and Stannis, Castle Black, where Jon Snow lives, and Blackhaven, home of Beric Dondarrion. Black Tom Heddle has no sigil, but he wears a demon helm when he goes into battle, so his severed head also gives us a pretty strong resemblance to the black dragon meteors. Finally, Lord Peak's eyes are noted to be flinty, and of course flint is a stone which can produce fire. There's talk of the crows eating Lord Peak's eyes soon, a nice tie-in to the eyeless skulls in Mel's vision, and the severed heads of the Night's Watch brothers on spears who are also eyeless. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before, but those heads were left there by a wildling who's known as the Weeper, because he cuts out the eyes of his victims. This connects the bloody tears of the moon idea to the spear-like and sword-like meteors, just as John's scene with the wall weeping to produce streaks of red fire and black ice does. There's a scene where Obara, one of the sand snakes, tells of the day her father Oberyn came to claim her. Oberyn gave young Obara a choice between his spear and his mother's tears, referring to it as a choice of weapons. The joke is that the mother's tears are spears. Obara adds that her mother died weeping. Indeed. One final note on this Duncan Egg passage is that according to Bloodraven, the main event which takes place at this tourney turns out to be the fulfillment of John the Fiddler's dream of a dragon's egg hatching at White Walls. But that dragon turns out to be Egg, coming into his own as a dragon of House Targaryen. That's a dragon hatching from an egg. There's also a literal dragon's egg at the tourney, but Bloodraven has the dwarf mummers climb up the privy shaft and steal it in the night. In other words, everything about this tourney represents the waking of dragons from the lunar egg, with the white castle of white walls playing the part of eggshell. Thus, all the symbols I've highlighted here can be safely interpreted as applying to the forging of Lightbringer and all the rest. Duncan Egg stories are densely packed with mythical astronomy, and this tournament at white walls in particular is pretty great, so we'll have to come back to that some other time. I thought that it fit in well here because it has the black dragon meteors landing and throwing up a huge column of smoke, and the thunder and lightning references which tie into the storm god's thunderbolt, and the by now familiar severed heads on spears make a conspicuous appearance. I've been looking for an excuse to talk a little Dunkin' Egg, so there you go. Kissing and Wailing in the Last Hero There's just a couple more items to wrap up from the Oberyn and Gregor fight. So let's go back to that frozen moment where Gregor has just pulled Oberyn down on top of him, seconds before Oberyn could chop his head off. The first topic is the sexual procreation aspect of the Lightbringer myth. Just because this is a super manly fight between two fearsome warriors doesn't mean George can't slip in a little sexy talk. I'm betting you don't even remember these lines are in here. 
You might have been too busy throwing up into the trash can or weeping violently. So here they are. Tyrion saw with horror that the mountain had wrapped one huge arm around the prince, drawing him tight against his chest like a lover. Ilya of Dorn, they all heard Ser Gregor say when they were close enough to kiss. His deep voice boomed within the helm. So that's two references to procreation, kissing and being lovers. He slipped it right in there like a smooth operator. And this occurs when the sun and moon are pressed close together, creating yet another eclipse alignment at the moment a lightbringer forging is symbolized. Gregor's voice boomed within his helm to tell us what is happening here. This is a moon explosion, blowing up right in the sun's face. The second moon kissed the sun and then blew up in his face. Boom. Next we have the symbolic wounds that take place at the end. Gregor thinks that he would never know whether Oberyn intended to hack off Gregor's head or shove the point through his eye slit, while Gregor pushes steel fingers into Oberyn's eyes before smashing his head in. Head wounds and blinding, familiar symbolic wounds which the sun and moon undergo. The steel fingers re-emphasize the symbolism of Gregor's stone fist, which was bloody and smoking. Fingers in particular represent meteors in the Bonero scene at the Red Temple, where the spear-wielding soldiers are the fingers of the fiery hand. Steel fingers give us the idea of meteors that can make steel swords, which makes a lot of sense, and these fingers blind the sun, destroying its face. Again, I think this reinforces the idea that it was the smoke of the moon meteors which blotted out the sun. Note that the black dragon swords, known as Valerian steel, are smoke dark, and I think there's a distinct possibility that all Valerian steel contains black moon meteorite stone. So that's even more of a link between the idea of smoke and these meteors, or the swords, that symbolize the meteors. There's one more notable injury, which is the mountain making splinters of Oberyn's teeth. I've mentioned a few times that the dragon's teeth are described as black swords, or knives, as well as black diamond, and the viper's fangs, or teeth, serve the same purpose. Thus, the splintered teeth imply a shower of black meteors, the infamous Storm of Swords. Oberyn's oily sun spear was also described as splintered when Oberyn tossed it aside after stabbing the mountain. So once again, the symbolism correlates very tightly, showing us that Oberyn's splintered teeth and the splintered spear are the same thing. There was a sickening crunch. Alaria's sand wailed in terror, and Tyrion's breakfast came boiling back up. He found himself on his knees, retching bacon and sausage and apple cakes, and that double helping of fried eggs cooked up with onions and fiery Dornish peppers. Fried and boiled eggs. The moon was an egg which was scalded, as we've seen, so that's not too hard to understand. And look, a double helping. Because there were two moons, I take it. Fiery Dornish peppers, why not? I won't comment on the sausages. The mention of sickness fits with all the poison imagery and refers back to the idea of the moon being fevered or poisoned and sick. More importantly, Alaria Sand, who is a newly made widow, gives us the widow's wail of terror. I suppose the other wailing widow, Circe, has now found joy again. So that's it for the fight itself. Whew. Get up and stretch your legs a bit if you need to, unless you're driving a car, in which case that's probably not a good idea. Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. is a great music video, but it's lousy for the people stuck behind you in traffic. 90s pop cultural references aside, we're finished with the fight in the chapter proper, but I want to keep going with the widow's whale idea for a minute because we've just received a healthy dose of wailing widows and ear-splitting metallic screeches and shrieks, and the sword widow's whale is just such a damn cool piece of symbolism which relates back to many of the ideas we've covered today. 
It seems like all the wailing widows which pop up in these Lightbringer scenes refer to Nissa Nissa's cry of anguish and ecstasy which broke the moon, and to the idea of the moon meteors being seen as the moon's tears. Crying tears, there you go. The sword widow's wail has those waves of blood and night which show us a vivid depiction of the things that come from the moon when it is destroyed, making it a kind of moon meteor sword already. Widow's Wail and Oathkeeper, made from Ned's nearly black sword called Ice, represent black ice covered in blood, another reference to the bloodstone moon meteors we know and love. Those are the moon's tears, and thus we can see that Widow's Wail is basically a symbol of the moon's tears, which is named after the moon's death cry. Pretty cool. Consider the course of the life of Widow's Wail. It starts off as black ice, then becomes soiled in blood sacrifice of a sort. When the sword is split and reforged by a solar character, it still appears as though it's covered in blood, but now it also has the cross guard which flames gold and the golden lion's head. The sequence is showing us the life cycle of the red comet. It starts as a comet with no tail, basically a dark ball of black ice and iron, lonely and cold in the outer regions of space. Then it's covered in moon blood to become a bleeding star, and finally it lights up with red fire, making it a burning star as well. You'll notice this is more or less the sequence for the forging of Lightbringer, according to myth, from smoking sword to bloody sword to burning sword. Ned's sword is covered in blood and then reappears as two swords with flaming hilts, just as Lightbringer was covered with sacrificial blood in order to be lit on fire. The lion head pommels of Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale in particular show us that it has been fertilized by the sun, that it has drank the fire of the sun, if you will, and indeed, as we've seen a few times now, these swords are specifically said to drink the sun in the scene where we first see them. Essentially, blood and fire are added to black ice, and the result is Lightbringer, the Red Sword, or Red Comet. The splitting of the comet is emphasized not only by the splitting of ice into two red and black swords, but also by the scene where Lady Stoneheart sees Oathkeeper after capturing Brienne. The ruby eyes of the lion's head in the pommel appear as two red stars. Two red stars for two halves of the red comet. I'm not really sure what else it could be referring to. Since they seem to work in parallel with the split sword itself, I think it's a pretty safe conclusion. I mentioned Oberyn's broken spear as a reference to the split comet, and I want to add that all of these comet splittings may ultimately be referring to the broken sword of the last hero. I think that's what's important here. Beric's flaming sword broke in half. Oberyn's spear broke in half. The Titan of Bravos has a broken sword. Ned's sword was split in half, and the last hero's sword was said to have snapped from the cold. There's a nice tie-in to broken Lightbringer weapons, and possibly the last hero as well, in the scene at the Purple Wedding, where Joffrey receives and names Widow's Whale. Lord Tywin waited until last to present the king with his own gift, a longsword. Its scabbard was made of cherrywood, gold, and oiled red leather, studded with golden lion's heads. The lions had ruby eyes, she saw. The ballroom fell silent as Joffrey unsheathed the blade and thrust the sword above his head. Red and black ripples in the steel shimmered in the morning light. The sword of the morning? It's certainly not a white sword, and Joffrey is no white knight. Does this mean that the last hero's sword was a black sword and not the white one we know of as the sword of the morning? I go back and forth on this all the time. It really seems like it could have been either. Gregor's bloody fist smoked in the cold morning air, so there may be something to this. It could simply imply the war for the dawn. That's kind of what it seems like at the Battle of the Green Fork, where Tywin's army unfolded in the dawn light like an iron rose, thorns gleaming. The Northmen in that scene were largely Karstarks, 
who are called White Star Wolves because of their white winter sun sigil, and that's also the battle where one of the Northmen hit Tyrion with the Morning Star. Point is, we might be seeing the white swords and Morning Star symbols on one side, and the black iron Dark Solar King forces on the other, which would be the War for the Dawn. So I don't think that every weapon that shines in the morning light, quote-unquote, is necessarily a sword of the morning symbol, although it's obviously something we have to consider. In any case, it's nice to see some oil incorporated into Widow's Whale, and that would be the oiled red leather scabbard. The scabbard is also made of cherry wood, which might be meant to imply burning wood, since an ember in a fire can be called a cherry, and cherry wood is presumably red. As always, Widow's Whale's red and black ripples are made note of. The scene continues. Magnificent, declared Mathis Rowan. A sword to sing of, sire, said Lord Redwine. A king's sword, said Sir Kevin Lannister. A king's sword, a sun sword, a sword associated with song. We've talked about the theme of singing as it relates to dragons and the moon, but of course we also have the moon singers of the Jogos Nye, the devotees of the Starry Wisdom Church who sing to the stars, the direwolves singing to the stars, and the last line of A Game of Thrones is, For the first time in hundreds of years, the night came alive with the music of dragons. I think the dragonbinder horn and the cry of anguish and ecstasy slash widow's whale motifs play into this idea as well. We will do a whole thing about sound at some point, but let's continue with the scene. King Joffrey looked as if he wanted to kill someone right then and there. He was so excited. He slashed at the air and laughed. A great sword must have a great name, my lords. What shall I call it? Sansa remembered Lion's Tooth, the sword Arya had flung into the trident, and Heart Eater, the one he'd made her kiss before the battle. She wondered if he'd want Marjorie to kiss this one. Making moon maidens kiss sun swords is what the sun is all about. That's a pretty nice one. Throwing swords that are like teeth into the river. Sea dragon, ahoy! The guests were shouting out names for the new blade. Joff dismissed a dozen before he heard the one he liked. Widow's whale, he cried. Yes, it shall make many a widow, too. He slashed again. And when I face my Uncle Stannis, it will break his magic sword clean in two. Joff tried a downcut, forcing Sir Balon Swan to take a hasty step backward. Laughter rang through the hall at the look on Sir Balon's face. I suggested before that Balon Swan is probably a moon character, and here he's almost struck by the sun's black sword. The look on his face is particularly amusing, it seems. As for that broken Lightbringer idea, it's represented here twice. Ned's sword represents Lightbringer and was split in half, of course, and then Joffrey suggests splitting Stannis's sword in half as well. This is another clue that the last hero, and probably his later sword made of dragon steel, are closely connected to Azor High and his fiery sword. You'll notice that Joffrey dismissed a dozen names before choosing one, and any time I see that 12 plus 1 pattern, I tend to think of the last hero, whose 12 companions died before the end of his quest. Here, we have broken Lightbringer swords, and the last hero math, as I like to call it, placed side by side, so I'm inclined to think that's what this is all about. As a matter of fact, Joffrey features in more last hero math in Jamie's Weirwood stump dream. That's the one where Jamie finds himself in the bowels of Casterly Rock, and he and Brienne both wield identical flaming swords. That's kind of like a split sword, because we see one sword first, and then a few moments later, there are two. Think of how Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale are two matching swords made from one original. Oathkeeper's waves of blood red and night black contrast nicely with the pale, silvery blue flame of Jamie and Brienne's swords, for what it's worth. Anyway, 
The line is, Joffrey was there as well, the son they'd made together, and behind them a dozen more dark shapes with golden hair. My best guess for the identity of the last hero so far has been that he's a son of Azor Ahai, Azor Ahai reborn in the form of a child carrying on the legacy of his father, or perhaps going against the legacy of his father. Whichever it may be, it's tempting to see Jaime as the Azor Ahai figure here since he wields the flaming sword and carries the significant hand and eye wounds, and to see his son Joffrey as the last hero, leading twelve dark shapes that resemble him in some way. The last hero's companions died, of course, which might be the meaning of the twelve shapes behind Joffrey being shadows. Joffrey is the son of the sun, just like Quentin Martell is called the sun's son, because he is a son of Dorne in general and a son of the ruler of Dorne specifically. I believe that this sun's son idea is the same thing as the second sun motif that we see here and there as well. Comets and meteors, the children of the sun in our story, can indeed light up the sky to such a degree that they can be said to be like a second sun in the sky, as with the Ojibwa myth of the long-tailed heavenly climbing star that we examined in the last episode. George does something similar here when he describes the fires of the Hardhome disaster from 600 years ago, calling it, quote, a conflagration that burned so hot that watchers on the wall far to the south had thought the sun was rising in the north. We'll explore the Second Sun idea further some other time, but I will just point out that the banner of the sellsword company known as the Second Sons is, wait for it, a broken sword. Dun dun dun. Now I know what you're saying. Joffrey isn't very heroic. No, certainly not. He's a sadist and a budding psychopath. However, a couple of things stand out about Joffrey which might apply to the last hero. Joffrey died when he was 13. And in fact, the red comet appeared bright in the sky the morning of his 13th name day, and was even called Joffrey's Comet by the royal lackeys of the Red Keep. Some people think that the last hero may be the same person as the Night's King, who was the 13th Lord Commander and who ruled for 13 years before being cast down, seeing a correlation between these 13s and the last hero leading a group of 13, 12 plus himself. Perhaps Joffrey's psychotic nature is a clue about the last hero becoming the Night's King and committing dark deeds. In any case, besides being identified with the Red Comet, Joffrey, of course, wields Widow's Whale, the perfect sword for an Azor High Reborn character to bear. The two swords which he owned before Widow's Whale tell an interesting story as well. First, he had Lion's Tooth, which was thrown into the river. This was a hilarious scene, yes, but it shows us a meteor-esque tooth symbol being thrown into the water like a sea dragon. His second sword was Heart Eater, which seems like a good symbol for the comet that stabbed the moon's heart, and perhaps a distant call-out to Daenerys eating the horse heart which represented the comet. Now I can't help but notice that going through a progression of three swords, which ends with the sword of night, blood, and fire, seems like a dead ringer for the Azor High story of forging three swords. The three attempts to temper Lightbringer were made in water, a lion's heart, and then Nissa Nissa's heart, and Joffrey's swords seem to parallel this. The first sword was thrown into the river, so that's water. The second one, Heart Eater, had a lion's head on the pommel, but then all three swords have lion symbolism, so that's not very helpful. However, Heart Eater's pommel is a lion with a ruby-red heart between its jaws, so the lion's heart is specifically referred to with the second sword after all. Then comes the third sword, Widow's Wail, with its two red stars for eyes and all the blood and night and wailing symbolism which we've already examined. A dozen names for this kingly sword are inadequate, but the thirteenth one hits the mark. Red star eyes are the same as red sun eyes, if you think about it, 
And you might recall that the eyes of Ghost the Direwolf are described as two red suns in a scene from A Storm of Swords. Ghost and Jon Snow both have last hero symbolism, so it's interesting to find the second sun motif here. Jon would be Rhaegar's second son if RLJ is true, and Tyrion would also be Aerys' second son if indeed Aerys was his father, for what it's worth. Oathkeeper is a black sword with two red star eyes, while Ghost is a white wolf with two red sun eyes, and so once again, I'm left wondering whether the Sword of the Morning was a black or a white sword. Consider, John himself dreams of his father's sword, Black Ice, wields the black sword Longclaw, and dreams of wielding a red sword while armored in black ice. So, he would wield a black sword, right? On the other hand, John is very strongly associated with the Sword of the Morning, as my friend Sly Wren demonstrated in her terrific essay on Westeros.org called From Death Till Dawn, John Will Rise as the Sword of the Morning. You can find a link for that on my blog, or you can just look it up on Google. Even his black sword has a pale stone wolf's head for a pommel, which makes us think of the pale stone from which Dawn, the white sword, is supposedly made. He's also set to merge in some fashion with his white wolf, so he should wield a white sword. Like I said, I can see evidence for both, so I really am not sure. We can't rule out some sort of weird mixing of two broken swords either, as it would kind of jibe with a general Taoist, yin and yang, balance of opposites philosophy which does permeate the entire series. And that does it for our little detour into Last Hero talk. The Last Hero is a subject which we kind of touch on here and there throughout all the essays, because it's one of the more cryptic puzzles of ancient Westeros. Eventually, I'm sure we can find the truth of the Last Hero, although we certainly need to take a look at him from the Stark side of things as well. For now, we can see that the broken Lightbringer weapon motif seems to consistently appear with the Last Hero 12 plus 1 pattern and with an Azor High Reborn figure. The Last Hero was said to have a broken sword, so this all seems to add up to 13. A wedding and a funeral. And vengeance. Now, this is where a reasonable person would end this podcast. And if you want, you can pretend I'm a reasonable person and turn off the podcast right now. However, I've always been a fan of long books. I can think of five you're a fan of, too. Long songs and albums. A one-song album like Jethro Tull's Passion Play hits the spot nicely, as do 15-minute-plus offerings from the Mars Volta, King Crimson, Tool, Pink Floyd, and the like. Long podcasts like Dan Carlin's Sensational Hardcore History Podcast and long sentences, like the one I'm drawing to a close at this very moment. And so, as I am still feeling it, I've got a little more mythical astronomy for you. I could have chopped it off and saved it for a future essay. The voice of reason was crying out for this. But the thing is, all of it relates back to the fight and the symbols we have just explored. And now that you have all this stuff fresh in your mind, you have all the context needed to really get what is going on here with Sansa's hairnet and the purple wedding. If you want to, you can pause the podcast and turn it back on later and pretend it's a new episode. Presto! You're the editor I never had, and don't really want. So, having stomped my conscience into submission, let's talk about the Purple Wedding in Sansa Stark, the Moon Maiden Medusa. We've discussed the Purple Wedding a bit already, as the events of the Purple Wedding figure prominently in the Oberyn-Gregor duel. After all, the trial by combat is a direct fallout from the Purple Wedding. There's an interesting line in the fight which leads us right back to the Purple Wedding again, and specifically to Sansa's hairnet. Back at the beginning of the fight, as the combat between Oberyn and Gregor is about to start, 
Tyrion observes the scene thusly. Some had dragged out chairs to watch more comfortably, while others perched on barrels. We should have done this in the dragon pit, Tyrion thought sourly. We could have charged a penny a head and paid for Joffrey's wedding and funeral both. Copper pennies are also called stars in A Song of Ice and Fire, so again we see the idea of heads being symbols of stars and celestial bodies. The dragon pit is an excellent symbol for the destroyed moon. It's a home of dragons, which was destroyed in a great fire and collapsed. Just as the sun had two moon goddess wives, Aegon had Rhaenys and Visenya, and of course the dragon pit is on the hill of Rhaenys, who died early, killed when she fell from dragonback at the hellholt. A dragon princess tumbling from the sky and down to hell along with the dragon, that's our falling moon maiden symbolism for sure. Her dragon Meraxes was shot in one eye, recalling all the eye wound symbolism associated with the moon, as well as the Sirwin, the mirror shield tale, of spearing the dragon Urax through his one eye. I'll have an essay coming up on these two moons, as I mentioned earlier, because I think they might represent an ice moon, fire moon kind of dichotomy. But the point of bringing it up now is to say that Rainey's would have been Aegon's fire moon bride, and all of her symbols align with the destroyed second moon. The dragon pit being on the hill of Rainey's is a prime example. Thus, talk of holding this fight in the dragon pit is simply another indication of what this fight is actually depicting, the destruction of the second moon. Additionally, the mountain was said to have killed Princess Rhaenys, Elia and Rhaegar's daughter, who was named after the original Rhaenys, so that's another link between those characters and the second moon. This line in the previous quote about Joffrey having a wedding and a funeral, which are connected, parallels the purple wedding. Joff died at his wedding, just as the sun died when it coupled with the second moon, and just as Ober and Gregor kill each other in this fight. When Joffrey was poisoned, his solar face turned dark, and the poison came from another moon maiden, Sansa. This is a depiction of the waves of night, the cloud of moon debris, which blotted out the face of the sun, the vengeance of the moon that we discussed. When Dantos gives Sansa the hairnet containing the poison and instructs her to wear it to Joffrey's wedding, he tells her that it's vengeance that you hold. Joffrey's poison-darkened face is mirrored by Tywin's reaction at the beginning of this Oberyn and Gregor chapter, when Tyrion declares that he wants a trial by combat. Lord Tywin's face was so dark that for half a heartbeat, Tyrion wondered if he'd drunk some poisoned wine as well. He slammed his fist down on the table, too angry to speak. I particularly like the touch of Tywin slamming his fist down on the table. It's a match for Gregor's fist depicting a Lightbringer meteor landing when the sun turns dark. Ario Hota, too, thumps the butt of his long axe on the ground frequently, in lieu of communicating with actual words, including the signal which began the killing attack on moon character Ari Zokart. In addition to looking poisoned, Tywin cannot speak, evoking the choking, throat-slitting, and severing of the neck of Westeros ideas we saw in the mountain and viper fight to the death. The poison used against Joffrey is called the Strangler, adding to this line of symbolism. But enough about Tywin, let's talk about Sansa and Joffrey in the wedding which was basically a funeral. Technically, Sansa the Moon Maiden doesn't die with the Sun King at the Purple Wedding, but she does pull an epic disappearing act, and some of the rumors that spread about her escape match the Moon Maiden archetype. It's said that Sansa, quote, changed into a wolf with big leather wings like a bat and flew out of a tower window. The transformation and leather wings are reminiscent of Danny's Wake the Dragon Dream transformation, and of course leaping from a tower window is a key part of the Moon Maiden package. The ghost of High Heart sees Sansa in a dream vision as a Medusa, a girl with snakes in her hair. This is also from A Storm of Swords. 
I dreamt of a maid had a feast with purple serpents in her hair, venom dripping from their fangs. The poisonous snakes in the dream are representative of the black amethyst crystals from Ashai in Sansa's hairnet which contain the strangler. Just as poisonous snakes can come from the sun, as with Oberyn's poison spear, they can also come from the moon, because the poisonous black lightbringer meteors are, say it with me, the child of the sun and the moon. They are released along with the death of the sun and bring darkness to Joffrey's solar face. So sad. The amethysts invoke the amethyst empress, killed by the bloodstone emperor, her brother, and she's a second moon symbol, as well as the purple eyes of Targaryens, Danny's eyes are referred to as an amethyst by Euron and Victorian a couple of times, in fact. Targaryens are dragon people, and Danny is, of course, a symbol of the second moon as well, so we can see that the symbolism here runs many layers deep, and that the various symbols work to corroborate each other. But wait, it goes deeper still. Just as Gregor's shield turning from one star to three black dogs tells a transformation story, Sansa's hairnets do the same. The first one is made of moonstones, which are bluish-white and milky-looking, and you could say that they're alive with light in a certain sense. And the fateful one has the black amethyst, symbolizing what the bright moon became after its transformation. Gregor himself shows us the same thing. When alive, he constantly has the milk of the poppy flowing through his veins, but after he's poisoned by the sun spear, he has the black blood. It was a hairnet of fine-spun silver, the strands so thin and delicate the net seemed to weigh no more than a breath of air when Sansa took it in her fingers. Small gems were set wherever two strands crossed, so dark they drank the moonlight. What stones are these? Black amethysts from Ashai, the rarest kind, a deep, true purple by daylight. The black amethyst being said to be so dark they drank the moonlight is a clear indicator that these poison black amethysts, which are like purple snakes, represent the light-drinking bloodstone meteors. Hat tip to Evelay of the Blue Winter Roses blog for that find. Thanks, Evelay. The greasy black stone at Ashai drinks the light, too, of course, as does Ned's sword when it's reforged. The description of the amethyst as looking black at night and dark purple in the sun is a perfect match for the eyes of Darkstar, Sir Gerald Dane, and he too represents the sun and bright moon breeding dark stars which are poisonous. Silver, by the way, is the color most strongly associated with the moon, along with white. The light of the existing moon tends to paint things silver, and I believe that the destroyed second moon was associated with silver before its transformation as well. Think of Danny riding her silver horse and being called Silver Lady several times before she ever transforms in the funeral pyre and wakes the dragons. Danny's hair is also described as molten silver when it's wet, so this is yet another connection between Sansa and Daenerys. Sansa's hair is kissed by fire and covered in silver, which compares nicely to molten silver and gold hair and the idea of Danny being fire-made flesh like her dragons. If we compare Danny as a moon mother of dragons and Sansa as birthing poisonous snakes from her head, we can see that the black amethysts from Ashai are placed in parallel to the dragons, because both come from the moon maiden. In our recent collaboration with History of Westeros covering all things Ashai, we determined that it seems quite possible, or even perhaps probable, that dragons came from Ashai, like the Black Amethyst. Since dragons and Black Amethyst alike both represent Lightbringer, this might be another clue that Lightbringer and Azor High did in fact come from Ashai. I'm certainly of that opinion. If the purple-eyed Valerians descend from the seemingly purple-eyed Amethyst Empress, then they may come from Ashai as well, because I believe Ashai was part of the Great Empire of the Dawn 
and that's where the Bloodstone Emperor and the Amethyst Empress come from, of course. Now, Master Cresson tells us about the Strangler in the prologue of A Clash of Kings. Cresson no longer recalled the name the Ashai gave the leaf, or the Lysine poisoners the crystal. In the citadel, it was simply called the Strangler. Dissolved in wine, it would make the muscles of a man's throat clench tighter than any fist, shutting off his windpipe. They said a man's face turned as purple as the little crystal seed from which his death was grown, but so too did a man choking on a morsel of food. In other words, these light-drinking black gems are all about turning things dark, and the parallels between dark purple faces and eyes and the dark purple amethysts is probably intentional. There's even a parallel to Oberon's blade, which is described as being leaf-shaped, because the poison disguised as the black amethyst comes from a leaf, from a shy. Calling it a seed is interesting too, since comets are sometimes known as star seed. Lightbringer can be seen as the sun's fiery dragon seed as well. There's some pretty nice synergy going on here. There's actually a really terrific eclipse reference in that Crescent prologue too, as Crescent hides the crystals in the pockets of his robes. He thinks to himself that it's really a shame he doesn't have one of those hollow rings the lysine poisoners favor. But a hollow ring is exactly what an eclipse looks like, and in fact eclipses are called a diamond ring eclipse when they produce a certain optical effect that makes it look as though there's a shining gem in one spot of the solar ring, as you can see on this picture on my website. What's that? You're not looking at the website while you listen to the podcast? Well, that's fine. But if you want, you can just type in Diamond Ring Eclipse in your search box, or you can go check out my WordPress page where I got a picture of it. It's pretty amazing. It really does look like a diamond ring, I have to say. A slightly different solar eclipse optical effect is called the Ring of Fire, which you can see, again, on my website or by searching for Ring of Fire Eclipse. And you'll notice that the sky appears red as well. It's a hollow ring, everyone, and that's where the black amethyst poison comes from. Just as the moon can be a black hole in the sky when it becomes a dark star, the hairnet seems to do the same thing, and this is from A Storm of Swords. When she pulled it free, her long auburn hair cascaded down her back and across her shoulders. The web of spun silver hung from her fingers, the fine metal glimmering softly, the stones black in the moonlight. Black amethyst from Ashai. One of them was missing. Sansa lifted the net for a closer look. There was a dark smudge in the silver socket where the stone had fallen out. That's our black hole moon. When Sansa pulls the silver covering off her kissed-by-fire auburn hair, it then cascades down her back and across her shoulders, kind of like a river of fire. As I mentioned, it seems that the dragon moon which was destroyed was also associated with silver before it was burned and torn from the sky. Now, check out the very next paragraph. A sudden terror filled her. Her heart hammered against her ribs, and for an instant, she held her breath. Why am I so scared? It's only an amethyst. A black amethyst from a shy. No more than that. It must have come loose in the setting. That's all. It was loose, and it fell out, and now it's lying somewhere in the throne room, or in the yard. Unless... Uh-oh. Sansa's heart is in trouble. A moment earlier, she ponders the reality of Joffrey finally being dead and wonders, Why was she crying when she wanted to dance? Were they tears of joy? Agony and ecstasy, like Nissa Nissa, and Sansa's heart is hammering. Of course, meteors are referred to as the hearts of fallen stars in our story, and a falling moon meteor is exactly what the hammer of the waters was, according to our theory, 
So Sansa's hammering heart is simply another confirmation that the hammer was indeed the heart of a fallen moonstar. Her heart is hammering right as she realizes the black amethyst, symbol of the black moon meteors, has fallen out. And it might have fallen out in the throne room of King's Landing, where the Dragon King sits on the Iron Throne. As I mentioned before, the name King's Landing refers to the landing of Azor Ahai Reborn, the Black Meteor. And this idea is also manifest in the landing of Azor Ahai figures Aegon the Conqueror and Stannis Baratheon at the site of King's Landing. At the heart of King's Landing lies the Red Keep, and inside the Red Keep we find nothing but dragon meteor symbols. So the Black Amethyst Crystal would really fit right in. First we have the Iron Throne, a hulking black beast of twisted swords which were burnt black by Balerion's black fire. A black dragon sword throne surrounded by red stone kind of makes me think of the black dragon meteor surrounded by red flame, as with the sigil of House Blackfire, a black dragon on red. The throne room of King's Landing also used to have the black dragon skulls hanging on the wall, which are another dragon meteor symbol. And finally, the dragon king himself, who generally seems to wear black armor, and whose kingly sword was named Blackfire. In other words, this last paragraph with Sansa and Dantos is a fabulous hammer of the waters clue. A moon maiden's heart is hammering with agony and ecstasy when a black amethyst crystal falls to the ground at the Red Keep, where the black dragon king also landed. And speaking of those dragon skulls and their teeth of black diamond, there's actually a reference to missing teeth in the next paragraph of the Sansa scene. Sir Dantos had said the hairnet was magic, that it would take her home. He told her she must wear it tonight at Joffrey's wedding feast. The silver wire stretched tight across her knuckles. Her thumb rubbed back and forth against the hole where the stone had been. She tried to stop, but her fingers were not her own. Her thumb was drawn to the hole as the tongue is drawn to a missing tooth. What kind of magic? The king was dead, the cruel king who had been her gallant prince a thousand years ago. Azor Ahai was a gallant prince a thousand years ago, perhaps ten thousand, but now he's a dead king, got it? Like Oberyn's oily black sunspear, whose poison was thickened by magic, we see the suggestion that the black amethysts are both poisonous and magical. As for the black amethyst leaving a hole like that of a missing tooth, we've seen that dragon's teeth make excellent meteor symbols, and the fact that the dragon's teeth are described as black diamond makes a nice opposite to the idea of regular diamonds being equated with stars, as they often are. The Sword of the Morning Constellation, for example, has a bright white star in its hilt, which blazes like a diamond in the dawn. But dragon's teeth represent dark stars, and therefore are black diamond, just as the black amethysts represent dark stars and black holes. The line about Sansa's fingers not being her own works well with another line which appeared a paragraph earlier. She felt so numb and dreamy. My skin has turned to porcelain, to ivory, to steel. Her hands moved stiffly, awkwardly, as if they had never let down her hair before. Sansa's hands turning to porcelain and ivory makes us think of shiny white things, like milk glass and the white moon, while steel fingers harken back to Gregor's steel fingers and moon meteors as fingers or steel swords. Letting her fiery hair down evokes the fire from the moon again, which is when we should see steel fingers. Note the process here. She removes her silver hairnet and then lets down her river of fire. Sansa's dress also has pearls in this scene, and pearls are a distinctly lunar symbol, but these pearls are covered up by Sander's soiled cloak, which Sansa has dyed a dark green. Covering up the moon pearls is pretty clear symbolism, and a soiled cloak that used to be white and is now dark tells the same story. 
In order to be sure that we are dealing with a metaphorical passage, we are always looking for multiple symbols that say the same thing and make sense appearing together, and that's just what we have here with Sansa's symbolism. The last thing we need to examine regarding the hairnet is the fact that Dantos tells Sansa that the hairnet is vengeance for your father, and here's the quote. It's very lovely, Sansa said, thinking, it is a ship I need, not a net for my hair. Lovelier than you know, sweet child. It's magic, you see. It's justice you hold. It's vengeance for your father. Earlier, I presented the idea that the lunar vengeance is the smoke and ash from the explosion of the moon and the rising column of smoke and ash created by the impacts of the moon meteors. The black amethysts represent the black meteors, which throw up the ash and smoke. They kill the sun, in other words, just as Gregor's upthrust smoking fist kills Oberyn. You know what else has been labeled as vengeance for Ned? Well, the Red Comet, of course. This is from A Clash of Kings. Catelyn raised her eyes to where the faint red line of the comet traced a path across the deep blue sky, like a long scratch across the face of God. The Red Comet shares all the black ice, red fire symbolism of the moon meteors. Like the moon meteors, the Red Comet is also a child of the sun and the moon. You'll remember that we kind of settled on the idea that Azor High Reborn was probably the Red Comet, and the moon meteors, his dragons woken from stone, but that they were really two parts of a greater whole with the same nature, just like Danny and Drogon, or John and Ghost. Both moon meteors and Red Comet show us the waves of blood and night symbolism, and these waves of blood and night are the lunar vengeance. The black amethyst suggests the black meteors, Azor High's dragons, and the red comet suggests Azor High reborn, so they make a nice pair. Both of these can be regarded as the cause of the long night, and therefore the vengeance of the moon against the sun. The waves of blood and night are found in the folds of Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale, which used to be Ned's smoke-dark Valerian steel sword called Ice. The Red Comet is compared to Vengeance for Ned by the Great John, but of course Arya compares it to Ned's ice covered in Ned's own blood. This puts Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale into the Lunar Vengeance category, and indeed, Jaime gives Brienne Oathkeeper and says, You'll be defending Ned Stark's daughter with Ned Stark's own steel. Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale also drink the sun and darken color, as we've said many times, so we can see that the idea of darkening the sun is already baked into the swords made from Ned's ice. Therefore, it makes a particularly potent symbol of lunar vengeance against the sun. Ned himself is a moon symbol, in case you haven't guessed. His own sword, Black Ice, which is a prime Lightbringer symbol itself, drinks his own blood, just as Lightbringer, the sword made from the moon's corpse, drank Nyssa Nyssa's blood. Ned was beheaded just like Sir Gregor, and just as Gregor has a sun character take his sword, Ned has his sword taken by Tywin. Ned's sword was turned against him, just as Oberyn turned Gregor's sword against him, although not as successfully, of course. Ned is also sick and fevered at the time of his beheading, like the Moon Maiden. Ned was the Hand of the King as well, and he was indeed chopped off. He lived in the Grey Stone Castle before that, one which has warm water pumping through its stone walls like blood. And you remember that time Winterfell burned, right? That time when Summer and Bran saw something which may or may not be a dragon hatching? The walls crack open and Winterfell is called a shell, and the warm water spills out and pools up, showing us the moonblood flood. The grey stone matches Gregor's description as a grey stone giant, and in fact, early on in A Game of Thrones, Ned even appears as a giant to Bran. He looked up. 
Wrapped in his furs and leathers, mounted on his great war horse, his lord father loomed over him like a giant. I've never seen anyone try to make anything of this quote, so it's worth mentioning. Basically, Ned and Winterfell are both moon symbols, and so therefore the two incarnations of Ned's lunar vengeance, the Red Comet and the Black Amethyst, make a ton of sense. The amethysts are light-drinking, venomous moon snakes that are a part of his child, while the Red Comet symbolizes his sword. The moon meteors, of course, can represent the moon's sword or the moon's children, and so we can see that the moon's vengeance comes from its sword and its children. You'll remember that in episode 3, we saw Sander Clegane playing the role of Azor High Reborn as a hellhound, and he was both protecting and avenging Sansa the Moon Maiden. In a general sense, all of this basically says the same thing. The sun kills the moon, but then the moon has its vengeance by blotting out the sun. I think it might also imply the idea of Azor High having his own sword turned against him, perhaps by his son, the last hero. Mountains in the Wind Okay, we're almost out of here, I promise. There's just one last little bit of Lightbringer symbolism woven into that trial-by-combat scene between Oberyn and Gregor. Remember when we talked about Drogon as the Black Dread Reborn and Miri's seemingly impossible prophecy about Drogo returning to Danny only when she bears a living child and a bunch of other unbelievable things happen? When the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, said Mary Mazdor, when the seas go dry and mountains blow in the wind like leaves, when your womb quickens again and you bear a living child, then he will return, and not before. The idea was that either Drogo being reborn or Danny bearing a living child would both represent Azor High Reborn, who's a flying moon meteor. This will happen when mountains blow in the wind like leaves. We've just established that Gregor the Mountain That Rides is showing us Azor High Reborn as a flying moon meteor or a flying mountain, but do meteors blow in the wind like leaves? Recall that Oberyn's oily black sun spear, which can also symbolize a moon meteor, has a leaf-shaped blade. The blade Miri uses to sacrifice Drogo's red stallion and bathe Drogo in blood is similar, and it's described thusly. It looked old, hammered red bronze, leaf-shaped, its blade covered with ancient glyphs, the magi drew it across the stallion's throat, under the noble head, and the horse screamed and shuddered as the blood poured out of him in a red rush. Red bronze like a red sun, hammered like the hammer of the waters, and leaf-shaped like mountains blowing in the wind like leaves. Remember that the sun and the moon both die when Lightbringer is forged, when the sun wanders too close to the moon and cracks it. The tide of black blood that pours from Gregor's visor in Bran's vision was transformed by Oberyn's leaf-shaped sun spear, and the red tide of blood from Drogo's stallion is triggered by Miri's leaf-shaped blade. Drogo's red stallion, in turn, represents the red comet, the bleeding star, and this is of course what triggers the tide of burning moon blood, just as Drogo's horse gives us the blood tide. In other words, leaf-shaped blades can represent Lightbringer, leaves blow in the wind, and Lightbringer can also be seen as a falling mountain. But I wouldn't base a conclusion like that on just one flimsy quote, heavens no! This one involves Sir Balin Swan and the ride in King's Landing with Sansa, the Hound, Tyrion, Joffrey, and the rest. Tyrion saw Aaron Santagar pulled from the saddle, the golden black Baratheon stag torn from his grasp. Sir Balin Swan dropped the Lannister lion to draw his longsword. 
He slashed left and right as the fallen banner was ripped apart, the thousand ragged pieces swirling away like crimson leaves in a storm wind. In an instant, they were gone. Someone staggered in front of Joffrey's horse and shrieked as the king rode him down. Whether it had been a man, woman, or child, Tyrion could not have said. Pieces of the sun blowing like red leaves in a storm wind. You don't say. Remember that the falling moon meteor mountains are the children of the sun and the moon, so either a fallen sun or a fallen moon can give us meteor-like things. In an instant, the sun is gone, and right at that moment, someone staggers in front of Joffrey. That's someone standing in front of the sun, creating an eclipse, right when the sun banner births a fiery leaf storm. And what does our solar king do to his would-be eclipser? Why, he rides them down, of course. The victim's shriek would be a parallel to Nissanus's cry of agony and ecstasy. Notice also that when Sir Balin drops the solar banner, he draws his sword, which makes sense because those thousand fiery leaves are, of course, the fiery moon meteors, which are like swords and were perhaps made into swords. Swords, leaf-shaped blades, you get the idea. Azora High Reborn, the burning leaf, everyone. And lastly, we cannot talk about burning leaves and red leaves without mentioning the red leaves of the weirwood tree. They are well known for being said to look like bloody hands, but they are also described as a blaze of flame, such as in this Theon chapter in A Clash of Kings. The red leaves of the weirwood were a blaze of flame among the green. As we know, objects in the branches of mythological world trees like Yggdrasil, from which the weirwood descends, in a manner of speaking, represent the celestial or the heavenly realm. Therefore, the weirwood having red leaves which resemble bloody hands or a blaze of flame creates the familiar image of blood and fire associated things to represent meteors falling from the sky. It makes for a nice parallel to the torn lion banner in the previous scene which became a storm of red leaves, and the idea of the meteors as bloody hands leads us right back to the stone fist and the fiery hand symbols. You see how all these ideas work together and corroborate each other? This is that tangled knot of symbolism which I'm always ooing and aahing over. Oberyn's black oil-covered, leaf-shaped spear mounted on a shaft of ashwood ties to several ideas. Oily black stone, leaves as meteors and thus weirwoods, and the ashwood spears with the heads of the Night's Watch brothers, and thus the black and bloody tide. The red leaves of the weirwoods, which are like flaming, bloody hands, tie into the leaf-shaped blades which unleash the blood tide, the fiery hand and fist ideas, and fire and blood in the heavens. Mountains blowing in the wind like leaves ties several of these ideas together, while Gregor the Mountain has stone fists and waves of black blood and night, and so on and so forth. Most of my time is spent trying to figure out how to explain this stuff in some sort of coherent order. It can be quite a challenge, as you might imagine. But now that we have journeyed this far together, We have all these ideas floating around in our noggins, and we can see how the central ideas are corroborated from many angles, and that George's use of symbolism seems highly intentional and very consistent. If it were not, we could never form any of the sort of hypotheses and tentative conclusions that we do here on this podcast, and of course elsewhere on the internet. As a special bonus on the weirwood leaves, I'll leave you with this little nugget from an Arya chapter of A Clash of Kings, where she has just descended from the branches of the weirwood tree at Harrenhal. The light of the moon painted the limbs of the weirwood silvery white as she made her way toward it, but the five-pointed red leaves turned black by night. During the long night, the moon meteors were black. A blaze of flame, yes, but after they landed and caused the darkness, they turned black by night. 
I mentioned last time that there's quite a lot of interesting crossover between the Green Seer, Skin Changer, Old Gods ideas, and Azor Ahai and Fire Magic, and the idea of burning leaves representing moon meteors seems to be more of that. We have Barak and Bloodraven, both sitting in a type of throne of weirwood roots, Jon Snow, the soon-to-be-resurrected Skin Changer, who is also an Azor Ahai reborn figure, like Barak, and that perplexing scene in A Dance with Dragons, where Mel calls ghosts to her, seemingly overriding Jon's Skin Changer bond. Mel even encourages Jon to develop his Skin Changer abilities, which is quite perplexing, since she is otherwise fond of burning weirwoods. To top it all off, and to preview an upcoming episode, which will develop these connections further, I will mention that the Storm God's Thunderbolt, which we now know to be a moon meteor, is famous for setting a tree on fire. And what is a weirwood but a screaming tree with burning hands? This is LML signing off. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.